Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Fiction. My name's David Parker. And I'm Luke Mason. So, Luke, if you were a god, what would you uh, be the god of? Um, I think you'd be a kind of a Loki, personally. <laughs> like a little bit of a trickster. Loki? I think I'd have energy. <laughs> <laughs> what would I be the god of? <laughs> but anything. Like, uh, you, um, your options are limitless here. But you have to have like some kind of identity. I think of all of the gods that I feel the most, there's two. You'd be Prometheus. Uh, he wasn't a god, technically. He was a titan. So. <laughs> okay, all right. I would be some sort of marriage between Hermes and Dionysus. Oh, wow. Okay, there you go. I, uh... I relate to the trickster and the... Partier. Partier. <laughs> okay. So uh, that would that would be my, maybe a sprinkle of Apollo in there too, just to keep the balance. <laughs> a little logic. Yeah. I would prefer to be the god of electric guitars. <laughs> that would be perfect. Oh, okay. So that's probably the Dionysian <laughs> aspect of it. What about know, you? I didn't know electric guitars had a god, but uh, I guess that makes sense. Uh, well, I think right now it would probably be Jack White. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess being Jimmy Jack Page? White would be pretty cool. <laughs> what about you? What god would you be? Uh, I think I mean Thor would be pretty cool. I, I could get behind being the god of thunder. But I think it would be some kind of vengeful god who like wreaked havoc on his enemies and destroyed those who, who opposed like him. Calvin? Yeah, yeah. I'd be like a Calvin god. <laughs> I mean, if I'm gonna be a god, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's funny. But here's something I never got too, though. Is like when Calvin dreams of being a god. I feel like he's missing kind of like there's a huge gap in what you would actually want to do if you had that much power. Yeah, like you probably wouldn't be <laughs> like, that concerned yeah. with, you know, petty human yeah, things. I, I, of course, yeah, I mean, I think the the psychology is betrayed in the motive, how the motivations of these deities in power <laughs> are the same as the people who are Yes, thinking about true, <laughs> true. And so I guess on, on that note we'll be discussing uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Yeah. Uh, it is a novel that was published in July of 2001. Uh, Neil Gaiman, I think, is probably one of the most talented living authors. I would put him up there with Patrick Rothfuss and others And when it comes to crafting narrative and just raw prose. I think he's incredible and probably underrated in the sense that, I mean, yes, he's a New York Times bestseller, but <laughs> uh, underrated in the sense that a lot of people still don't know who he is, so... If you haven't read this book, go read this book. I don't think I think you can listen to this podcast and still read the book, but there will be spoilers in this. Yeah. So, and because I recognize his name, 
Did he have any other major so books? Probably that he's his biggest book before this book uh, was Neverwhere. And it was a story about uh, basically a fantastical world under London. Like okay. Kind of an upside down. It, oh. If you're thinking Stranger Things. Interesting. One of my favorite books. Very good book. But the, Eric and Gods was his most famous, uh, I would argue. Did it, he have any other after this one? Yeah, he's written many, many books. He's got like even um, a sci-fi uh, series. Oh, so. interesting. But he's a, uh, um, yeah, American Gods. Well, probably. <laughs> and Stardust, which was made into a movie. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that, I would so. say that would be the one I knew better than because <laughs> yeah, yeah. of that movie. Uh, well, Neverwhere it, became, he's bigger in England, and um, Neverwhere became a TV series. There. He's bigger in England? Yeah. Is he British? I Yes, I, be- I believe so. Really? I think so. He wrote a book called American Gods, and he's British? That's pretty amazing. But he probably, I think he's one of those British people who moved to. Oh, uh, Okay. America. Yeah, but you um, know what? I don't want to speculate on that. So, <laughs> especially because that is something we could so easily look up. But yeah, so um, things like that we are uh, that's not steadfastly <laughs> determined to not do. And I also just wanted to point out too that just for like listener clarity, there's also a TV show made on American Gods on uh, Amazon Prime. That's where it's streaming. And we did not watch that. We did not. <laughs> for this. No, we've so only read the book. It's so. straight up from the novel. So if you have seen the show, uh, I have no idea how close to the source material the show is or not. So maybe we'll be talking about things you understand. And maybe you're like, what the hell are they talking about? It's because all of both you and I, it's just the book. Yeah. You know, not. Uh, I think this was your first reading of the book. And mm-hmm. this is my uh, second reading of the book. So. Yeah. Yeah. I read it for the first time for this uh, podcast, and it was not exactly what I expected, but I don't really know what I expected, so that's not very helpful. <laughs> if this book has to fit a genre, it's kind of like a fantasy noir. Yep. So, okay, here's a, a style of book that it reminded me of, and it's a style I really like. Do you know Murakami, the Japanese author? No, I've, Harisho, heard that, I've heard Harisho that I need Murakami? to read books. I think that's his name. He's kind of a similar type of genre where, I, yeah, it's like fantasy noir or contradiction of this aside, fantasy realism. Yes. So in his in Murakami's novels... I think they call it magical realism. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. There's things like Murakami's novels are always set in like Japan, in Tokyo, like normal life every day. But then there'll be a thing where like a cat starts talking to a character in the book and then the character's like oh this is weird but then as soon as they realize it's happening it's not weird and it's just kind of yeah. what's happening and, and, and never never where is even more like that uh i think than american gods but it, oh, american gods is pretty a lot like that parts of american gods were obviously like it's set in the normal world you know and in the united states and yet things start happening where you're like what <laughs> yeah <laughs> wouldn't yeah. this cause more outrage or at least curiosity on the part of the people around but it kind of i guess it does for some characters but not for others and it's like this kind of um it feels like in in american gods especially shadow but some of the other characters just kind of already suspended their disbelief yeah well (laughs) shadow like i think he kind of suspends it after weird stuff just keeps happening to him he's slowly another great book that's a lot like this is orison scott's cards magic street okay but this is a genre that i particularly really enjoy and i actually would say that this is a modernized version of narnia to a degree right because if you think about it 
set in the real world, but then suddenly you go on this fantastical adventure, you know, through the wardrobe. That has a weird connection to the but real it's very world, still, it's but you very don't much know. Still connected, yeah. Well, but, and I guess there's the carousel in the wardrobe connection. Even, even in this book, there is a period where, like, they he feels like they're only in place for three days, and it's actually been weeks, and, like, time yeah. distortion yeah, yeah, and all yeah. that. It's that's all right. very mm. thematic along those lines. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Um, so it basically in this book, the main character is shadow and, uh, he has been in prison for a bank robbery. Well, not actually a bank robbery, a assault connected to a bank robbery that they never, uh, actually charge him for the bank robbery. He gets released, but upon being released, he is, uh, just before he's released, he finds out that his wife, who he kind of is like the most important thing in his life has died and he ends up going on this long adventure where he basically finds out that he's the son of a god, <laughs> Odin, and meets all basically any god that anyone's ever believed in. It turns out is real, and they're essentially powered by the by the belief and prayer and sacrifices of regular people. That's kind of what they feed off of, and, and particularly blood sacrifices yeah. and, and death. And Given the title of the book, I'm pretty sure most of them live in the United States. So the weird thing is, like, kind of the theme of this book is that America is a really bad place for gods, and they don't they don't survive well there. It's just sure. not a land that that treats them very well, and the <laughs> Americans seem to be always moving on to the next god, and so the, right. there's like not a lot of sustenance for the gods in these areas, <laughs> which I think is amazing, and we'll get into later. But yeah, uh, the scarcity of belief. But it basically, yeah, that America is not ex- America is not a good land for gods. Like that's a line often in the in this book. You know, it's not a good land for gods. Yeah, and I think because there's not a lot of abundance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of different geography and i mean essentially the idea is these gods are kind of scraping by they're almost like beggar gods yeah like, like they're, well, and they're there's, tricksters and but there's like, there's still a little bit of a hierarchy of these gods and odin is still kind of one of the still king. the all father as they yeah, call him yeah and, but he's actually known as wednesday yes mr wednesday <laughs> mr wednesday U- odin <laughs> who yeah who kind of hires shadow he hires Shadow to be kind of his bodyguard slash bagman slash yeah. driver, and uh, they go on these adventures where they meet all kinds of other gods, mm-hmm. and he gets left places. And then all throughout the story, we get flashbacks to gods arriving in, or basically gods arriving through people into America from immigrants. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually one of the great parts of the book. Ah, uh, okay. Like I'll just, just for a moment to say that I think... Anyone who can write the way that Neil Gaiman does, it, it's a gift beyond measure. He transports you into scenes that you, you like. If reading Dickens is a slog, <laughs> reading this is like a, it's like the best adventure you've ever gone on. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's a it's a pretty incredible talent to have the ability to write a kind of tangential vignette off your main plot of like 25 pages some of them are but i would collect directly to connect connect to it and not lose an audience (laughs) over it yeah i mean this is something that people like victor hugo tried to do arguably dostoevsky's tried to do and failed miserably at dickens included whereas neil gaiman has captured this in like uh yeah it's masterful oh it was it was really fun yeah okay so basically Underlying all of this is that there's a war going on between the new gods and the old gods. 
or supposedly there's a war going on. And the idea being that the new gods, people believe in them more. So these are gods like the media and gods like money and gods and television. Like, yeah, and town and, and road, right? Modern things. Things we might more associate with economics and tech. And there's a great line in it where it basically what's being sacrificed these gods, where are they getting their power? Our time. I mean, this book is so layered and so thoughtful and such a great critique on the human psyche. But essentially uh, what's happened is the old gods are worried that the new gods are going to just basically kill them off. And then gods can be killed mm-hmm. in this uh, in this universe that Neil Gaiman has created. And so Odin or Mr. Wednesday is going around trying to recruit the gods to basically go to war with the new gods. And throughout the process of the book, the new gods capture Odin and kill him Mm -hmm. on basically a live telepathic network that goes on to the TVs, but only the other gods can see. They kill him, which rallies all the old gods to basically go to war. But the reason that... And then we find out the kind of the the big uh, reveal of the book is that Odin has planned all of this so there'd be a gigantic slaughter, a, a big battle, but he would dedicate the battle, or someone would dedicate the battle, i.e. Loki would dedicate the battle to him, uh, which means that he would get all of the power from the bloodshed. Oh, and yeah. The, the, it's a gigantic sacrifice, but how, to how much? Him. To him. <laughs> and it's gods dying for yeah, him, yeah. which means, you know, which we'll get into the, which kind of given, the metaphysics of, of this, but which gives him... a immense power would give him of immense sure power. and and of course given the tenor of the way wednesday slash odin has been arguing and the value structure he's been going for this is a pretty big betrayal of that this is a con and yeah like that's the idea it's a two-man con yeah and um and odin in this book is a con man he's mm-hmm. a, a mr wednesday runs cons to get his money that's and you know cons women and yeah because like really he's he's claiming the whole book that his motivations are kind of like old school. We want to reclaim our grandeur, like the gods deserve their place, and uh, we deserve our place. We deserve our place, and And we should be allowed to survive. Like, uh, yeah, we should be allowed to survive, and they're coming for us. We need to stand up for ourselves. And use himself as a sacrifice to like lure everyone. Yeah, which makes which makes it seem like he's even more of a martyr for the cause. But really, his plan is just to get all of their sacrifice to him to be even more powerful for i can't remember is it revealed is it just straight up to be that powerful well like basically this is the sus okay so let's get into this because i think this is the the crux of the book this is why i want us to talk about it because i think it has massive implications for real life okay so essentially the idea behind this is also kind of um, fleshed out in terry pratchett's small gods but the the concept is that there are gods and the way that they get their power is by people believing in them yeah and the worst thing that could happen to a goddess be forgotten because mm-hmm. when you're forgot and that's such a killed, cool idea I, yeah. I don't think it's a particularly new one but it's a this like this book is a great reiteration no i don't yeah okay so i won't say it was a it's a new one but i think it is the first encounter i had with it okay cool as a uh as a concept was through this well and especially because it's always been it's so it's so taught not just to us but it's like taught like the causeway is gods to us yes right yes and this book turns out on his head it's like no from people to gods well yeah and basically how gods get their power in in american gods is a little bit different than small gods 
but essentially it's it's belief and taking actions on that belief mm-hmm. that you otherwise would not in order to right. service behavior this. affected by yeah belief beha- so so like gods need sacrifices yeah so in the case of the new gods that's a, a large number of people sacrificing their time in the case of someone like odin it might be you know people being people being sacrificed so there's the rule of nine right you know nine men have to be sacrificed over nine days for odin you know in order to like placate him and and give the vikings what they need blah 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 so what i love about this concept is it takes human belief as a starting point yeah not the existence of god as a starting point because Mm -hmm. i mean i guess how we were raised and how i always thought about it and i understand this way of thinking because it makes sense psychologically but there's this great immense powerful being that you are just you just you have to worship because of who they are and what they are and they created you for that purpose yes exactly <laughs> so i mean like it's you're 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 actually you're in alignment with reality is, mm-hmm. is what the teaching would go and you're manifesting the will of that god yes yeah and uh, obviously the, the the other difference here is that there's there's only one god right and and there's false gods <laughs> sure yeah but there's only the one god yeah, and, yeah 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 and what i love about this concept is it shows in a fantastical way, the power of human belief mm-hmm. and how essential that belief is for certain things to exist. Because while I don't believe that a whole bunch of people believing in something creates a, let's say, a physical reality, sure. I think there is a reality created by believing in something mm-hmm. that becomes, in some ways, more potent than physical reality. It makes people do things. Like it's it's this like, mimetic idea that actually it, that does spread like a virus yeah. and and becomes so powerful. So basically um, one of the examples of it is it's also it's talking about the idea of gods but carried by people. Mm-hmm. So how are these gods getting to America? Well, they're getting there in the minds of people, in the worship of people, in the teaching of people. So there's this great vignette where it talks about how leprechauns were brought to America. And it's this Irish woman who ends up, you know, coming to America and she's always kind of leaving out a dish of milk for these fairies and these pixies and always teaching her children about them and just believing in them so strongly. And then at the end of her days, the pixie kind of grabs her hand and like takes her to the afterlife or whatever. Yeah. And it's this idea that the the things we create are with our belief systems can actually impact the tangible world mm-hmm. in a very real way. And I think a great example of this on a really negative point would be the Inquisition. Yeah. Right? People believed so strongly in the danger of heresy. Like so I, I was raised very Christian and at one point I had a very a uh, devout Catholic friend who was talking about the Crusades and the Inquisition and whether they were good or bad. <laughs> and he was trying, he was defending them. And one of the things he said about it was, well, if you really believe that people were in danger of the fires of hell and that heresy would increase the number of people that were going to hell by believing that thing, you would have to take that incredibly seriously, like to the point of killing people. And that really opened my eyes to like, oh man, like that is an example of someone really believing something yeah. and, and impacting the, the physical <laughs> sure, world, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But I think it goes deeper than that because I think, I think the very foundation 
of human society and human reality exists upon belief. Like it's all constructed on that, on that premise. And this is the example that I'll use. So I don't think, I don't believe in the great man theory of history, which basically says, you know, there's some men that come along and they, and they change everything just by their sheer force of their personal will. I believe that these people that have so impacted history that, you know, of the billions that have lived, we still talk about them, were surrounded by a large number of other people who actually made it all happen. And, and why do they do that? Because they actually believe this person was great, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It was their belief in that person, not the person themselves, that gave that person the power that they had. Right. And, and now people are like, oh, wait, you're, this is kind of airy-fairy. Well, like, it was their belief? No. It's psychological because once you start believing something, you start focusing on it more. And when you focus, uh, there's this – because we, are, we encounter so much um, noise, let's say, from our senses, focus is essential. And what we focus on is, you know, what you, what you think about is how you live, all that kind of stuff. Well, when we focus on something we believe, like, say – that someone's great, we will pick out elements of that person or pick out things that they do and we'll start to tell stories about them. I experienced this when I worked for the prime minister. So often we would sit around as staff and we would tell stories about times we were around the prime minister. This is a, in essence, we were giving him power by creating this myth. It wasn't a myth. There were things that had happened, but we were only telling the impressive things. We were like, we weren't, we weren't sitting there bashing him all the time, right? <laughs> or more realistically, you weren't accurately and honestly recounting all of his poor decisions right. along the way to, right. it was to like, be fair and balanced. Because the- that also, because our identity at that point as staffers and young, young staffers was so tied to the significance of working for the prime minister that why would you tell like the shitty things about the prime minister? Because that would degrade your value and your identity. Mm-hmm. But all of this to say, uh, let's take a, an extreme example, which is a character like Elon Musk, like, or a person like Elon Musk. Millions of people firmly believe in his genius mm-hmm. to the point where it doesn't actually seem to really matter anymore whether he is a genius. He attracts geniuses to work for him. He comes up with ideas, and then people believe those ideas. <laughs> he says, I'm going to build a flamethrower, and I'm going to sell it. And he makes two, tens of millions of dollars off of a propane thing. <laughs> like, yeah. What has happened here? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I would, I would argue, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I, I'd re- like, I really want to know what you think of this. I would argue that people's belief have given this person power. And why I love American Gods is, well, it, it's kind of fantastical, there's a real... I would say fundamental human reality lesson here, mm. which is that where you spend your belief yeah. is where what you give power. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah, though I want to get into this. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's I good. think that is the crux of American Gods. Okay, no, that's that's a good starting point for sure. One thing that occurred to me when you're talking was that yeah, you're totally right. It's really impossible i think to okay so when you have great men or great women or great people but then yeah you think of well and actually like anyone who's kind of prominent now clearly has 
dozens if not hundreds of people working with them for them <laughs> at their behest sometimes that, for free for free so yeah to to get in we don't know their names you know how many names of like that are lost in history how many people helped out genghis khan or yeah. how many people yeah. helped out julius caesar or alexander or you know you name it right well you you brought this up the other day with the silver sun pickups right mm-hmm. where you had you were be gushing about them and then the guys like they're just people yeah and i affirmed that and agreed they are just people and yet they have immense power why well the reason like it's you just can't write historical narratives about like you can you can write historical narratives about dozens of people maybe even like a hundred but you can't write about thousands <laughs> you know we no. just like there's just a human bandwidth isn't there and that's a really interesting psychological quirk i wonder though Yes, I, I totally think you're right when people, and I think Dennett calls this belief in belief, like the just the belief in the belief yeah. is motivating, clearly, right? Like, yeah. like your point or your example of Elon Musk is very on point in that regard. I'm wondering, though, like, when is that the only way you could okay, so think here. to motivate people en masse? Uh, to be involved in a particular endeavor, let's say, like, because I'm wondering about the people who might, maybe they're a minority and they might even be a vast minority, but the people who see what Elon Musk is doing and are really motivated by his scientific achievements and think that, oh, well, it's not so much that I think Elon Musk is a genius necessarily, but I think that he's got resources and tendencies that are aligned with my own. And that's why I'm interested in going. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think it's the only way that things get done, but I think it's okay, so let me take this theory and I'll, I'll uh, we went from the macro view, let's go to the the micro view. Mm. So let's take an individual. 85% of jobs are not just picked out of a pile of resumes. Right. It's cuz someone knew someone and they said, "Oh, this guy would be good or this girl would be good." Mm-hmm. Right? Only 15% are just blind picking out of a like just looking at your credentials. Okay, And this is also, funnily enough, the case with academic things, right? So getting accepted to a university. It's all who you know. It's all who you know. Now, now, what does that say? Well, I would argue, and this goes to my entire theory of network and opportunity and, and personal growth and what I call leveling up, not in like a spiritual sense, but like in a, in a socioeconomic sense mm. and a life sense, is the more people you have looking out for you in situations like that, the more likely you are to be successful. Mm -hmm. Those people believe in you. And if you imagine your life at the beginning, although this isn't the case because some people start at different levels, but if you imagine it as, so you have one opportunity. If you do well at that opportunity, at least one other person generally who's given you the opportunity sees that you are, a competent, successful, whatever person. Mm-hmm. If you begin delivering, taking opportunities and seizing them and delivering on them more, you you build basically what I call a gravitational pull of opportunities because as you have been succeeding, mm-hmm. people more and more people believe in you, yeah, and they'll just give you opportunities, sure. and eventually you become a critical mass, almost like a I, I call it a black hole, where you're just pulling in and opportunities begin to orbit you. Why is that happening? And I would argue that is happening because people believe in you. It is not your sheer force. You don't have the attention span or the the ability to focus on everything that's happening in the world. 
You don't even know the opportunities you're missing mm-hmm. as an individual. But if you have more sets of eyes, yeah, paying attention, if you're at the forefront of more people's minds, you will ju- you will inevitably have more statistically statistically have more opportunity. Yeah, and so that's on a, just an individual level achieving individual success or, or achieving your individual goals. Right. And so basically, I think what separates the very successful from the less successful is the number of people. Hmm. Okay, that's an interesting take on it. I'm trying to f- figure out because I, it's not that I disagree with you. I think that's that's like the from the statistical analysis, you probably could. I guess my resistance is, and I've talked about this with you before. I have a kind of built-in resistance for broad terms. Yeah. So when I'm thinking of things like words like successful or opportunity or advancement, I'm a little bit queasy on using those for a kind of grand narrative theory. (laughs) Right. It's not that I don't think it could be true. It's that I guess I would want like this kind of thing studied kind of thing, like actual have, have real you know, social science studies on networking. And I know that that's out there. I mean, like that's, and it's probably does affirm what you're talking about. Yeah, some of most of the stuff I've read know? on this, but the thing is it, do, it never says it like that. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I mean, th- that's why I love this podcast right. is we're talking about fiction. Like and saying it like that. What's the beauty of fiction? Yeah. You can say it any He's, goddamn way you want. <laughs> and how does Neil Gaiman say yeah. it? He says yeah. it like gods. Yeah. But like, but, but see here, okay, so it's more of like, okay, well, like, what is the quality of the way people are looking out for you? No, that, that's important too. There's, all, there's, all, there's a lot more, um, I guess, nuance to this theory. Because there's an element of the way that the gods act in this book that is a little bit kind of, I mean, it's actually really funny to me, <laughs> just the perspective of these gods kind of like, trying to figure out how to trick people into believing them in them again there's an element of really shady salesman yeah <laughs> oh weird. i think one of the funniest and best <laughs> and, things about this book is yeah. it's basically these gods it's like, who, they've lost all that <laughs> yeah they're trying to court <laughs> human attention yeah. with i don't know like weird tricks <laughs> like trying well, to it's like fake easter out. is like super powerful because uh, there's a great scene where so there's a the god easter who is originally uh, a fertility goddess yeah the Christians kind of took the name Easter holiday and kind mm-hmm. of, as they did with many things, yeah. subsumed it into their, their own tradition. She's like, well, I'm super powerful. People are always talking about me. I, I, I gathered lots and lots of power. Yeah. And basically Wednesday says to her, like, nobody's worshiping you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just because they're saying yeah, your yeah, name, yeah, they don't yeah, even yeah. know who you are. Now, and yeah, because they do your rituals with yeah. the rabbits and the... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very funny. Again, I think what is kind of... I don't know if this is what Gaiman is going for either in the, in the way that he writes the way that these gods are ambulance chasers. Yeah. <laughs> in a sense, yeah. right? Like they're... But the, the belief, old gods are. Yeah. The new gods are Yeah, not. yeah. The, well, yeah. The old gods are ambulance belief chasers, yeah. which is hilarious. I think you're probably right at some kind of very true but low resolution sociological level. But again, just the way my brain works, I would be interested in knowing like, well, what kind of quality or dynamism is existent in a pursuit that is trying to maximize kind of networking let's say okay so perfect because that's what i wanted to get to next because it doesn't seem to me like the gods are happy 
like that's not even the right word. That's too blase. Like all the gods when they're trying to chase these beliefs seem outside of their wheelhouse <laughs> in okay. some way. This is perfect. This is perfect. Which is interesting. Let's take a celebrity. There's been so many movies and books written about these things, but what seems to be almost universal, no, not quite, yeah. is that once people become celebrities, they don't want to hang out with their fans. <laughs> like, they, they kind of despise their fans a little bit. And why? And uh, I forget where this what this is from. Some celebrities, probably. Like, I... I don't, I, I don't like. I don't think they want to hang out with just fans who are like, like adoring off the fans. street. Like they hey, don't want to hang go. out with no. adoring fans. And the reason is because they know that the fans have created something in them that is sure. Not yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? And they are miserable often, and they sometimes kill themselves because <laughs> it just is meaningless. All yeah. this belief that they're receiving and all yeah. this attention, yeah, and yeah, essentially yeah. their wealth and fame. Is coming from this fakeness. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily that they are fake. It's that you can't become that big without being watered down into something (laughs) that can be consumed by that many people. Sure. They aren't happy because I don't, I essentially don't think having that many people believe in you is going to bring you happiness. Right. And actually, I know I talk about him a lot, but this is actually a great thing about Elon Musk is he's not doing it. Yeah, for the people well, to like him. That seems to me part of the antidote to that kind yeah. of yeah. mindless following is Elon Musk, or I don't know the great people in history like Genghis Khan or whoever, right? Like well, they would I mean, s- not great. I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> great, great as in great. significant. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they would still have a voice in talking about what they think about people who worship. Them, yes. <laughs> let's say yeah. or believe in them. And I, I don't, I mean, I don't know about Elon Musk specifically, but there are a lot of other people and celebrities um, who remain quite humble and dedicated to the kind of craft or endeavor that got them known in the first place. I think that goes back to things we've talked about before in terms and the essential nature of kind of know thyself and like memento mori remember you must die like it's very important to stay humble in these things and i think the only way to do it when you become that big is to kind of relentlessly pursue the thing that brought you there yeah or not even necessarily the thing that brought you there but the thing your vocation the thing that you have purpose to do in life okay so then because there's a lot of lines in the book that aren't very salutary to the american public no (laughs) as well so i'm wondering then do you think then that part of what Gaiman is pointing out is that the way that the gods are chasing attention of the people is mirrored in some way that the American public is chasing attention, but it's a fool's errand as well. Well, like it's just as empty if people do it too. Amusement, right? So right. there's a great line. Uh, I think it's one of my favorites. It's very late in the book. And uh, Shadow's actually seeing his former self kind of at his mother's deathbed. Yeah. And uh, go, Shadow wanted to shake himself, the awkward boy that he once was, got him to hold her hand, talk to her, do something before she slipped away as he knew that she would. But he could not touch himself, and he continued to read. And so his mother died while he sat in the chair next to her, reading a fat book. After that, he more or less stopped reading. You could not trust fiction. What good were books if they couldn't protect you from something like that? (laughs) Ah, yeah. That's perfect. I mean, 
those are literally Neil Gaiman's words, so I, I think we can trust him on that point, that yeah. basically what he's saying here is, I'm trying to get the quote in my head and I can't quite get it, but what you basically what you give your attention to is how you live your life. Sure, right? yeah. And who you become. Well, and I think, I'm sure we've used it on the podcast, but I really like the heuristic of you become what you pursue. Yeah. You know, and if yeah. you pursue mindless amusement, it's easy to see why that's such a, to critique the thoughtlessness and distraction of the American public is like the oldest form of American critique on itself. I think like that goes back to Twain, <laughs> you know, like that but kind the, of thing. But the cool thing is that this critique isn't just about, it's also about the fickleness. Sure. Right. And where it's basically like, what's the next thing? Yeah. Well, like, and I- <laughs> this is a bad land for God because you're not going to get a long sustained belief. Yeah. Cause even it's, if you're on top for a, a, a couple of years, you know, there's something, something new is going to come along. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, actually I realized <laughs> I'm kind of partly, I have an answer to my own question <laughs> here okay. because there's a line from Wednesday himself talking about this. So the Wednesday, the character says, People in the USA feel the call to the transcendent void, and they respond by building a beer bottle model of somewhere they never visited. <laughs> yeah. And again, like I think that that's actually the same point as the quote you just read, is that transcendent void, maybe what Camus would have called the absurd, realizing that you might be in a situation where you sit in a chair and watch your mother die. And ignore that situation and try to... The way that Americans... well. I don't. I'm again. I don't mean all uh, American. Like the way that the common stereotype and the critique done in this book is that the way that the American kind of soul, I guess, deals with that, and the the consumeristic American soul is to make a beer bottle model, right, or read a book. I mean, in a book, it's a really good version of something that could be a distraction, but like play a video game. The things that the society gives people to do that gives them an out from really deep self and existential contemplation that they still feel because they're <laughs> they were humans before they were Americans. Yeah, you know, they're, that and they're feeling these these existential things, but they're ignoring them and they're distracting. Sam Harris, uh, on his most recent podcast with Eric Weinstein, but all throughout most of his podcasts, and you can get this from anything, talks about waking up, you know, yeah. thoughtfulness. Well, that's the name and, of his meditation yeah, app. Actually and, engaging... And engaging with reality consistently and not thoughtlessly wandering through realizing you're you're not you know you're not a totality of one thing you're a multitude mm-hmm. things like these and things. paying attention to all those different things that come up to you yeah and pay, paying attention to your senses understanding what's being brought in but not allowing not saying this is me right and i think uh, another quote that i wanted to read that, that really touches on this and it's perfect timing that you just brought it up. <laughs> Good. We do not always remember the things that do no credit to us. We justify them, cover them in bright lies or with thick dust of forgetfulness. All of the things that Shadow had done in his life of which he was not proud, all the things he had wished he had done otherwise or left undone came at him in, then in a swirling storm of guilt and regret and shame and he had nowhere to hide from them. He was as naked and as open as a corpse on a table. And Dark Anubis and the Jackal God were his prosecutor and his, or his prosecutor and his prosecutor and his prosecutor. I think essentially what we're trying to do in this podcast is is help people to be more thoughtful. But if you're reading books to escape yourself, yeah. to to not have to deal with with the things that I just the, the the regrets you have, the guilt you have, the shame you have, if you're trying to avoid yourself, and this I mean this is essentially the story of Shadow. Yeah. At one point, his, his dead wife, mm-hmm. who is some kind of zombie 
<laughs> a living thing. It's really cool. Read the book. Yeah. But uh, she says to him, it is. I mean, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but I really have to. Like the whole book is this kind of crazy modern noir. It's it's definitely of the noir genre. It's dark and it's it's a you know it's a seedy underbelly of the gods kind of thing, and yet it feels like a book that was written more recently than two thousand and one because of its prescience when it comes to technology and human enrapturement with it, basically. And and because again, sorry, I know that this is an interruption of a good point you were making, but it's so important is that. One of the, th- the the tension of the book really is from the fact that the new gods, the science and the tech and the infrastructure and all of that, are subtly replacing the old gods, but they are kind of like the way that they are represented is that they seem kind of less thoughtful than the old gods. Like there's a wisdom that the old gods have that might let them win. In the in a the, the new gods are youthful kind of and and naive and type A and macho they're like kind McDonald's. of thing. they're like a McDonald's to a home cooked meal <laughs> yeah like, exactly and so like they actually, over there's a scene where that's kind of like yeah, they overwhelm head. you why I feel like this book feels like it was written more recently than 2001 is how Gaiman seems to have seen I mean obviously technology in 2001 was quite widespread and ever present and the internet existed but there wasn't wi-fi it was still dial up kind of thing to think about how much more true this book is now if the new gods is tech is is, a cell phone is is mind-blowing cell phone addict in in his foresight so yeah yeah anyway the element of shadow and his zombie wife is pretty cool too yeah and so she she describes this scene to him she's like one time when I was coming home after something, I walked into a room, turned on the light, and was, and was startled because you were just sitting there doing nothing. You weren't watching the TV. You weren't engaged in anything. You were just sitting there kind of staring off. Yeah. And she's like, So presumably thinking. Or something along those lines. She's like, you weren't alive. You've never been alive. And she's like, I'm the Robbie guy that she was cheating on him with when she died because she was, you know, giving There was an up. infidelity here. <laughs> she says, you know, he wasn't perfect and he wasn't even really good, but at least he was alive and he wanted things and he had desires, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's that line about shadow. Bottle up your emotions long enough, you don't feel anything at all. Yeah, and like this book is is about someone coming alive and waking up, waking up to life. Yeah, uh, and essentially making it at one point making a decision to die, mm-hmm. and in doing so, being more alive than he ever had been. Wonder where I've heard that story before. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, like, Harry Potter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, it, 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 but with a waking That's up, fine. right? It's 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 paying attention to what's going on. A big part of that, he confronts these things, his guilts, these regrets. Sure. And it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And, as he's being judged because he's obviously never really... And you, I mean, when you read this book, Shadow's not someone who, would, who has dealt with these things. <laughs> like, he's <laughs> yeah, just kind it's... of like a really tough guy who's kind of like bulldozed his way through life. Mm-hmm. Now, in the narrative itself, that's actually one of the things that is... Uh, again makes me feel like this is a murakami novel where all of these crazy things start happening to shadow that have never happened to him before and he doesn't seem that weirded out by them yeah (laughs) he just kind of goes along with it like Like, he seems he seems curious but like he reacts to these gods or these like really bizarre weird things happening to him kind of like how you might respond to a windy day like you (laughs) notice it but you don't 
Like, but, it doesn't and, really and Neil, derail you. Neil Gaiman does try to explain this, where he's basically like, after Laura shows up from the dead in his room talking to him, like, nothing's weird anymore. Because it's like, if that happened, then... Okay, yeah, that's true. But I still think, like, the... And he says that. When, yeah, but when... Well, you'll remember you read this more recently. Shadow doesn't seem that weirded out even to see Laura, though. Like No, he, he, no, <laughs> that's true. Like, he's like... Now maybe he thinks he's kind of dreaming. Maybe at the time he does, yeah. But so I mean, you know, like, that's the great part about this book too. It it feels like a fevered dream. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. yeah, and so again, just stylistically, one of the things to really love about this book is how weird things happen in this normal universe, and something that might make you ninety percent surprised seems to make Shadow ten percent surprised or fifteen percent surprised. <laughs> like, and you're like there are things Wait that we really saw that made me like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I think the other part to remember, uh, I guess for narrative flow is that he is half god. So he's the only one. So it's built this. in somewhere. It's like I don't think regular humans can even see these things. Right. Like yeah. there's remember when they're all showing up. Because there are up. a lot of regular humans. Remember in when the they're book. all showing up at the Ro- House of the Rock, like all the gods are kind of congregating for this big war. Yeah. Like the regular tourists don't even seem to see them there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. So, that's um, a good point. That's so a good I point think, too. Uh, it's yeah. still just funny as an experience reading. Oh, it, I know. Because you're like, whoa, I would have been like really thrown off. Yeah. But and then, and then it's like, well, this shadow guy is just kind of this stoic, like, well, all right. <laughs> but more uh, gods know, to deal with. Kind of like, yeah. like but yeah, he is waking nihilistic. Up. It's a nihilistic stoicism. Like, well, this is, matters. I'm really glad you've said all this because it's made me think about it a lot more and in a different way uh, because there's just so much there. If you consider this through the prism of self reflection and understanding what you're doing with your time it's a really great story for that kind of way of thinking you know and and this belief in belief that makes things exist the book kind of makes me a little bit well it definitely makes me interested in the history of all these gods again reading them again or reading about them but this book left me thinking a little bit this is a really interesting and long-winded way of saying this is how we make sense of the world yeah <laughs> you know yeah. like it is a, it is a really great rosetta stone almost of psychological attachment to things and i think that thematically why i find this book so captivating is when we talked like you mentioned before the cause the causal line is totally inverted or made backwards is that so much of what well, i guess we would call real world worship of gods is along the lines of like submission and propitiation like <laughs> you go to the gods with your sacrifice and if it's good enough they will accept you with a, like a little bit of a indifference right or <laughs> like a, like an insouciant dismissal <laughs> yeah and in this book it's flipped in that the gods are the kind of pursuers of that attention and i do love that take because again as you'll know like my intellectual captivation of the last number of years has been how our brains have made the world yeah right well, not okay. how the not how the metaphysical entities out there have made our brains here this is this is a perfect quote for that people believe thought shadow it's what people do they believe and they will not take responsibility for their belief and then they will not take responsibility for their beliefs they conjure things and do not trust the conjurations 
People populate the darkness with ghosts and with gods and electrons with tales. People imagine and people believe. And it is that belief, that rock solid belief that makes things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, that that is very clear. The motivation needed to do action in the world is not a physical thing. It's a mental thing. I mean, maybe this is just a description of that. Or not just, I don't mean it like in that sense. Like this book is a great description. Like it's almost like a kind of like an anthology or it's not an anthology. It's like a list. I don't know. I wish I would have a better name for a list of all of the reasons that all of the things that have motivated people in history and the things that are starting to motivate them now and how they are. It's like a genealogy of belief. Yes. Very good. That's the word. And they're different in specific, but identical in function and the role that they're playing are the same. So the role of like the leprechaun or the fairy or Odin or the older gods that, and also my favorite vignette is the one when the two slave children come to yes. America. Well, I was gonna, that yeah, one, I was going to get into that. That one is so incredible. Good. So the things like throughout history that, that, but then again, the iron. Okay. So the great irony of this book is how the new gods don't understand that they're actually just the old gods, but newer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they, there's actually nothing different about the, fat kid believing in the internet or or the uh i say fat kid not to deride but there's an actual character called the fat kid in the book (laughs) that kid's belief in the efficacy of his internet or his phone or his technology is very much a part of like a similar psychological mechanism of motivation that something like loki would have been for someone a thousand years earlier right and I guess part of the great irony of the book, and, and obviously Gaiman meant this, was how no one really seems to be able to see that except Wednesday, who's a cynic about it. And manipulating and, it for and mani- power. And manipulates it for power. And then I think also, I can't remember if Shadow says it or not, but like Shadow seems to also recognize the kind of fool's errand of picking one side over the other because well, they're actually just the same thing. He, he essentially comes to the realization of what Odin's doing before Odin does it and basically convinces all the gods not to have this war and kill one another and essentially destroy each other, which I think is a profound statement on the state of politics right now that we can get into (laughs) later, but basically don't because the, this person's getting their power from you doing this. Like this is, this is a con. This is a two man con. Who's the other guy in the con? Oh, Loki. Loki. Is Loki called Mr. World? Um, and he's leading, right. And he's leading the, uh, the new gods. Ah, yes, but that's right. I forgot about that aspect. That yeah, for Odin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because because Loki thrives on chaos, <laughs> of course. So while Odin's kind of power structure is based on more death old school and sacrifice, yeah. his more visceral is based on stuff. Case chaos, so the war will cause chaos. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, anyway. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah I, I totally forgot that that's who Loki incre- was. Incredibly nuanced. Uh, that, I mean, this is what I love about. Neil Gaiman is the way his mind works on these things, like uh, on just so many levels that he's he's able to to weave this tapest this beautiful tapestry of of a fevered dream basically in mm-hmm. such a way that you can everything connects and it's a good story. Like whereas Dickens was a master of the of character development, I would say. Gaiman is a master of narrative mm-hmm. construction. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, it's definitely not a book 
character driven. <laughs> no, it's plot driven. <laughs> well, and I mean, Shadow is kind of boring. <laughs> yeah, like, like, like he's if not you were... an interesting hero. Yeah, I'd actually, I mean, <laughs> if only there were a show we could watch to see how he's portrayed on a screen. <laughs> Yeah. Which we didn't do. <laughs> well, and it's, it's really hard to do. Uh, and I talked with my friends who enjoyed this book about it before it came out. Mm-hmm. We, we've talked about this before. Every medium of storytelling has yeah. something it's really good at. Yeah. Uh, and, and challenges. Yes. And novels are really good at showing you internal dialogue. Yeah. And you know what's really bad at showing you internal dialogue? Television. Television. Yeah. <laughs> so, Without voiceover, which feels so cheap. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. That's a not a bad segue to talking a little bit about Shadow and Wednesday, especially because they're the two real main characters of this book. And so one relatively early in the book thing we get about Shadow of his, I guess I would call it smarts. I don't know. Maybe you can think of a better word for it. But there's a scene where he's, um, what god is Cernabog? What does he represent? Basically, he's like a, a Russian god. Yeah, there's but, a Russian god but called like, Zernabog with three sisters. Or <laughs> anything. It's just yeah. like a it's a it's a mythology from kind of like the steppes. Yeah. So anyway, he's playing a game of chess with this uh, Zern- checkers. Oh, checkers, right? Yeah. And and Zernabog is a friend of Wednesday, obviously, but we don't know about the gods yet exactly in the book. But they're playing checkers, and then I think Shadow says, "Okay, if I lose, you can kill me." But, but if I win, you have to help us. But if you win, you have to help us. And then he loses, but then he says, okay, well, we'll do it again, double or nothing. And Cernabog says, well, how am I going to kill you twice? And then he says, well, you can get enjoyment you're, out well, of it. No, basically, time. he's like, you're old, and you and you only get one swing, and you might not kill me with right, the first Right, 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 yeah, one and you, swing. Yeah, and you, you might want to you know, get another swing. But in the second game, Shadow has paid attention to Zernabog's style, and just like wrecks him, yeah, right. I mean, like, basically, like is chaotic and quick, and doesn't like that doesn't do yeah. anything. And physical. what was a great little nugget I got out of that was how there's a lack of dynamism in Cernabog's approach, right? Or Cernabog's approach, and he's not adaptable. So once you learn, once Shadow learned the one way that he played checkers, he could beat him. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because he had no other, and so even if it was a great way, his lack of flexibility and adaptability made it impossible for him to beat him twice. That just struck me so hard as a great meditation on the kind of like how you do something is so crucial, maybe even more than what you do, because mm. of the importance on being able to be adaptable to anything, right? And I know that that sounds a little bit platitudinous. But uh, it just struck me as really deep is like, if you want dynamism, like a dynamic way of making, like I think about a good example of this would be how you play music with other people. And if you, and I'm not as good at this as I wish I could be, and real musicians do this better. If you're in a band and you, you could be so proficient technically at the way, but if like, if you're playing guitar and your bass player fucks up and it throws you off and then you're off, you can't get back on. Right. right. Like right. You're, you're out of the, you're out of the term and you're out of the pocket and you can't get back in because you can only be in the pocket if you start there and stay there. But what the great musicians do is know how to get back, to get back because they know how to deal with these little surprises along the way. So they, they can play the same song more than one way. Right, because they know what they if they miss they know the song so well they know what other notes they could throw in they know how to be improvisational they know how to cover up other people's mistakes they know how to not 
make it obvious if they make a mistake and then you get back in the song because the whole the more overarching thing is flowing so in this example Cernabog is the musician who once they mess up they have to stop the song and start all over again well that's terrible right <laughs> yeah or or they're the person who only knows one song <laughs> maybe you know that kind of thing and i liked like that was just really cool how shadow saw that you know so i don't know like what 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 do you think that says okay. about shadow so shadow one of the there's a couple of things i really like about shadow and, and a couple of things i really don't like uh but the thing i really like about him is he's pretty normal there's nothing at all exceptional about him except that he's a little bit bigger than other people mm-hmm. but he's not smarter than other people He's maybe stronger than other people. He seems like a strange person to have as your protagonist (laughs) because his inner dialogue isn't that interesting. No, like it's pretty basic, but I love it because he is the hero and he ends up being not just the hero, but he he saves countless lives and he's he's self-sacrificial and he confronts death Mm -hmm. and overcomes it, which Mm -hmm. is, I mean... Can it get more quintessentially important than that? <laughs> sure. I think like there's nothing yeah. more important than that. And I think that's what's so cool about what Neil Gaiman is able to tell us a story about someone who's uninteresting <laughs> in an interesting way. Yeah. And, and but but show us that you don't have to be exceptional to do exceptional things, which is an archetype. Yeah. And I think an archetype done interestingly and differently by, by Neil Gaiman. So anyway, going back to what you're saying about he is clever in the way that people can be clever mm-hmm. in that he can read a situation and it can dawn on him with, with the right clues of what's going on. So let's take the, the town in which the children are being murdered like one child every year in order to feed this God's whatever. Oh yeah. That's a part of the plot we left out, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's actually not that important to the, I mean, to the plot, but it's well, very it's symbolically, and even though it's a thought experiment, it's really great. Yeah, but yeah, uh, and um, he doesn't figure it out on his own. Someone has to kind of give him a clue, but he's able to piece everything together once he gets it, and that's kind of the guy that he is. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like that's kind of the guy that most of us are. Sure, yeah, and I think one of the great observations or insights of Neil Gaiman on a person like Shadow is that. Shadow is soft-spoken, right? He's a quiet guy and he's soft-spoken. Well, I don't know if he's soft-spoken, but he's quiet. He doesn't talk much. And I think what is portrayed really well by him in the book is how that actually makes it really hard for a lot of the other people around him to know what to do with him. Because other than Wednesday, who seems to have a transcendent knowledge about Shadow because, you know, he's his dad and he's been watching his whole life, actually, or at least known about him. Yeah, yeah. Everybody else in the book... And, and the other gods even seem to not really know what to do with him. In, and they're in, kind of fascinated by they're, him. Yeah, they're, yeah. There's, they're part bored, part fascinated. The bored is like, well, you're not really doing anything to be interesting. But then the fascinated is like, what kind of person would never try to do anything to be well, interesting? But, but interestingly enough, like we have this, this is again. But that's why Zernabog, I think, wouldn't really know to watch out for him true and that's why he's like a good person to take advantage of those kind of situations is that someone like shadow would be a good person to look out for and maybe take a haughty or arrogant person down a step because the the haughty or arrogant person is already not good at seeing potential <laughs> upstart competencies that could beat them they're doubly not good at seeing it in someone who doesn't give it away on solicited right? i'll give a, a personal vignette on this that i think is hilarious that, that sure. kind of capitalizes on this point 
So I was at a political convention, and they usually involve a lot of drinking and, <laughs> what? and frivolity and kind of growing out. Well, as and, long as it's my tax dollars. And so that's I'm, my one. No, no, no. That's my one criteria. It wasn't, it wasn't tax dollars. It was very much political donations. Um, <laughs> and uh, fair enough. So we got into this, you know, masculine arm wrestling. A bunch of us were just having an arm wrestling competition, oh, yeah. and and I happened to actually uh, be quite good at arm wrestling, mm. and was beating people who, if you looked at them, I shouldn't beat. And I was I was getting pretty puffed up about it. I was mm-hmm. feeling pretty good, and I was beating everyone. You brought your armies. And uh, <laughs> I did. I brought my armies. <laughs> my, you know, gun one, gun two kind of thing. And uh, and then pew, pew. this guy, normal looking, didn't look like he was that tough guy, came and challenged all of us. Not the guy to beat you, right? And oh, This guy crushed us all sure because he was a he was like you know a mennonite farmer just looked like a regular guy but but was just like tough as nails <laughs> and it's like shadow right you don't expect it and you got these guys kind of puffing up their chest wandering me <laughs> you know i'd been winning everywhere yeah. and then this guy comes along and just crushes me and uh it's a good example of watch out for the quiet ones actually another great author patrick rothfuss what is what does a wise man fear a quiet man's anger. <laughs> yeah, that's a good line yeah. for sure. Yeah, uh, and it's not even that Zernabog was arrogant. No, but he was no. he was unadaptable. Yeah, but but there are there are characters in the book that seem to underestimate Shadow. Yes. in a way that he is able to kind of utilize to his advantage in one way or another. It's hard to tell though, really, if Shadow has been planning that or just kind of takes the serendipity as it comes. He seems to be <laughs> you know? he seems to be adaptable in the sense that he's constantly analyzing the moment and he mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have a plan. Yeah. And so his advantage is he never really has a plan sure. so he can kind of react more quickly than people who've like this is the thing I'm going to do. Your story reminded me of a joke. Okay. <laughs> Why did the Amish girl get excommunicated? Why? Two men a night. <laughs> that is a Luke joke that I've ever heard. Yeah, of. <laughs> uh, it takes all the boxes. <laughs> hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. There's another thing I noticed that I really liked about Shadow, too, is that he likes Wednesday and Nancy. Nancy is one of the other gods. He likes them weirdly kind of early, even though they're kind of shitty to him. And I thought the reason that he likes them is because they don't speak in cliches. So even though... Wednesday and Nancy are gruff and brusque and not particularly even, they're not even that kind to Shadow. I think he sees something deeper in them than he's got in that kind of, as you talked about, that distracted, blasé American culture that he's been surrounded in that I certainly feel a resonance with in myself where I'm like, I am, when I, uh, new people or, or famous people on the internet, 
I vitiate the most to people where I feel like, okay, you're not using platitudes, you're not using buzzwords, you're not couching your terms, you're not talking like a politician, you right. know, you're, yep. you are... You're not using talking points. You're not, yeah, because literally a cliche is not your own voice, right? Yeah. Like you're using somebody else's words. And that's something that I really liked about Shadow is that he, he liked, or he, he seemed more drawn to the people that were not as kind to him but because they were being more authentic with him about it and it made me think something too like i feel like that's like a not small part of the yearning of many people's souls <laughs> you yeah. know to just to just even for something real something people real something the refreshment real. of someone saying what they really think about something is i don't know like i mean it feels like a drug right <laughs> almost you know like the high that i get when I listen to someone like Douglas Murray talk about the subjects that he talks about, and even if it's not as articulate or as like, oh, I wish he made that extra point or that I would make that extra point, but because it's like, okay, here's a person who's clearly talking about something that they think is true and believe in and care about and are not just spinning it to make more friends or make a kind of a a better stance or a better sound bite for their base, let's say, yeah. that kind of thing. Because it's like... They're it, not broadcasting. Yeah. Right? Well, so it's not lowest common denominator either, right? So it's like, you could have people who you disagree with who you still like are like, oh my gosh, you are just placating your base. A great example is the difference between the way that Donald Trump and Ben Shapiro talk. You know, like Donald Trump is just unbelievably boring to me of all of his sins and there it's a long laundry list to me the greatest one is like you're not an interesting dude <laughs> you, right you say the same seven things it feels like and he's right wing ben shapiro's right wing and i could listen to that guy talk all day because of how thorough and principle based and and true to his convictions he seems and he uses those and he uses words that are clearly his own voice yeah, and he's thought these things through, and he's presenting yeah. his conclusions. And to and I've heard Ben Shapiro make points that are more classically considered left wing points, or at least not right wing conserv yeah. American conservative. Like he concedes things. He'll talk about things that Trump gets wrong. He'll talk about. He'll be fair, or as fair as a, someone who's famous for being a political commentator can be. I would say, and the amount of respect. I have to hear a person say even one thing against their team, if it's true, it's hard to calculate. And I feel like, obviously, it's a trick that Wednesday's playing, but I don't think it's a trick Nancy is playing exactly in the book, like the character Nancy. Or what god is Nancy again? He's a giant spider, like some ancient spider right, from, right. from Africa. The way that kind of non-watered down okay good for society talk, but like that hard talk that you were talking about, like how we talked about how Maybe it's harder to to watch your mom die. The the verbal equivalent of that, yeah, the refreshingness of that is something that Shadow seems to appreciate, you know, which is an interesting part of him, I think, and maybe something that's developed by his time in prison too, because he because he does seem to be very impacted by prison, and he talks a lot about what prison life was like and how you had to be mm -hmm. more aware of things and kind of paying attention for safety purposes. It seems to be his most eloquent or at least articulated aspect of his life was the was prison him yeah. and him and his, that and his wife yeah that and too. she seems to have kind of like brought him alive and then that kind of 
brought reality into focus. Yeah. So yeah, I would I would agree. I I think that's an interesting part about him. I think the most interesting thing I've found about him was that he appears to be pretty moral. Yeah, and like yet, classically classically moral. moral, but doesn't have any kind of reason why. <laughs> and I think that uh, Neil Gaiman does this kind of thumb his nose at the idea of morality because it's like this <laughs> essentially nihilistic somewhat is is the probably the most moral character the most self-sacrificing character of the entire book he was in prison he uh you know he sleeps with a number of people throughout like he he kind of violates all of the traditional moral norms of like mm-hmm. but he's actually the most righteous never, yeah he never tries to hurt anybody no exactly and i believe isn't the reason he's in prison kind of well? It was protect. He was protecting his yeah. girl friend from, or I guess wife. He was protecting his wife from being found out, and he never tells anyone about the bank robbery. No one does, mm-hmm. so they they can't catch them on that. So he assaulted the people who weren't giving them their share of the money for the bank robbery. Right. And yeah. So <laughs> so he just assaults the other crooks. Yeah, and that's why he's and that's in why he's jail. in jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like. Even that and is Laura's harder. Name never to comes think. up, and he's kind of proud of that fact. So he, I mean, the honor among thieves thing seems to be mm-hmm. his kind of thing. But I like there's a, actually a phrase in in it referring to uh, something that Loki had said to him in jail, actually, uh, which was you know only one. There's only one person that Jesus says that he'll see for sure in paradise, and it's not one of the disciples. It's the thief on the cross. <laughs> and yeah. may, I mean, it's it's perfect foreshadowing, but it's like. And maybe that says more about, says something about you know how you should judge people. Sure, right? Yeah. And no, it's so that's great. Good. That yeah. is great. I mean, and that then that also mirrors so perfectly that Nietzschean line where he says there was only one Christian and he died on the cross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that kind of ambiguity between well, because Nietzsche could have meant Jesus or the thief. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. And I like it's. In one sense, it's clearly Jesus. In another sense, it's the character of person that Jesus would see, yeah, as being worthy of the kingdom of heaven, kind of thing, you know. And, and I, well, that's that's and since perfect they both Nietzsche, died right? on the, so yeah. nuanced. Since they both died on the cross, that's a perfect Nietzsche line, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, and, and goes over most people's yeah. head, and they're just like, oh yeah, Jesus, okay. But so then, I liked this line that he used too. This is a line from Shadow near the end of the book, who says, "I would rather be a man than a god. They don't need anyone to believe in them to keep going." <laughs> I knew and there, when I was reading that that you would like that one. There's I a know, kind of a, there's a kind of stoical self reliance because again, like it's not so much I think for me and you because this is something we spend a lot of our time doing or thinking about or like, and it was kind of our whole life. But actually, this is a massive paradigm shift of a book from how it changed my whole way of we were raised you know and how even like an anthropological or a sociological examination of belief in gods or religions or any of that would be studied is that the gods need us yeah (laughs) right like uh which is craziness like that's like that is the antithesis well that's basically blasphemy right (laughs) well and what i love about it is it it's this and we don't need them like that that is yeah. a kind of an interesting i'd rather be a human than a god yeah yeah and, and i mean it's it's taking fiction and it's doing what fiction does best and it's getting under your prejudices and it's telling you a story that suddenly yeah. seeps into your Which, psyche and you're like wait a second mm-hmm. do the gods need well, me? because it's essentially like the gods are now uh they don't have monopolies anymore it's like a free market <laughs> and there's 
uh, more supply than there is demand. This <laughs> in, is, in the God this market, is why you know you should also all read Terry Pratchett's Small Gods. Uh, like Terry Pratchett, read is it a similar? Type it's totally of, different uh, in right. terms of thematically mm. and all that kind of stuff, but the the underlying the foundation of it is the same. Yeah, the idea that belief is what gives God's power. And so then the other kind of like unless you have something else, there was one other scene about shadow that was interesting, and I wanted to talk a little bit about it. And it's not an easy one, but there is a scene where he considers suicide. Uh, he's shaving. Yeah, and I'll preface this like it's not it's not like Shadow's depressed. He's not particularly he doesn't have any sort of kind of volatile emotions in any direction really he's very kind of there's an equilibrium to him pretty much throughout the whole book which is interesting until maybe the end there's a he's he's got a little bit more of a passion to him at the end not a lot but a little like a a lot more than he had like a strength (laughs) yeah that is passionate but there is a scene where he's shaving and he's got like that straight razor and he in his narrative in his head that we, the audience get access to, he just talks about how easy it would be to just slice his own throat and have it all end. But it's not even, um, this is, this is the crucial part. It's not a despairing thought. Even it's not a, it's not the thought itself is not motivated by a desire to want to do it or to think that it is the right thing to do. It's almost entirely based on how easy it would be to do. And then all of the th- then all and done. then and then after that and then he thinks and then all the things that make me suffer would go away it's a kind of um i mean this is of all of the hard things to talk about this might be the hardest thing to talk about because suicide is there there are some problems in moral philosophy that seem to me to be maybe intractable you could talk about them for centuries or infinity and you'd never get them i think the two that come to mind to me the most are things like abortion and suicide. Right. <laughs> like I could talk about them forever, hear every point, think they're all right and still not be any further down my thought about what is right or wrong about them kind of thing. But I will say that when I read that, I have experienced that same feeling in my life. Uh, uh, uh. Of a suicidal ideation of of it, of a it's not a desire to do it, but the ease of it is so there that it's a weird it's just a weird and it's and it's and it reminded me of a couple philosophical ideas and aspects in culture one of them is sartre's concept of anguish and he uh, differentiates anguish from fear or or anguish from something like fear or depression or despondency and i think he he uses like a building it's like fear is that you'll fall off the building anguish is the feeling that there's no good reason not to. Right, right. <laughs> and there's a song by a band called The Spill Canvas, yeah, The Spill Canvas, called Self-Conclusion. And there's a line that's like, we all flirt with the tiniest notion of self-conclusion in one simplified motion. Hmm. And then the line goes on, the trick is you're never supposed to act on it, no matter how unbearable this misery gets. And so, because the thing is with thoughts, they strike you before you think about what thoughts will strike you, right? Yeah. They just <laughs> and I, and I have a weird, I actually can't, I have a, a pre-rational fear of heights, which I think is embedded in any person, but like I can't go to high up places that don't have massive like protection walls because I have like a realistic fear of that anguish. Of, oh, interesting. Of the Sartrean kind. So, like, when I was in Malaysia, 
probably like 2013, I think, I could go, it's so funny to think about, like, I could go up to, uh, there's a tower in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and it's not the Patronus Towers, it's more like the Calgary Tower or the CN Tower kind of tower. It's the only other really tall building in the city. And I can go up like the, uh, you know, <laughs> probably eight, 900 feet to the observation deck. deck. Yeah. I can't go up the extra eight meters to the roof because there's no safety. Huh. You okay, know, okay. Because so it's wait, just a- I want to dig into this. What do you mean? So like you're afraid that your life has filled you with such anguish that you would just jump off? No, it's not. It, you know, because the thing is, the funny thing is in the moment, I don't feel like i could do that it's all entirely post hoc lying in bed dark night of the soul fear of that feeling and so i don't want those dark night of the soul fear of those feelings so i don't put myself in those situations there's no way you can think about it doing it yeah and it's also kind of like it's not exactly entirely in the nature of suicide either because it's also like i have these kind of terrifying revisionist history memories of things that could have gone wrong that are also not that so it's uh like i also have a very distinct memory of one time when i was living in korea i was on a run and i listen to music when i run so i've basically lost my ability to hear so the only sense i really have to make sense of the world around me is my sight and so i remember i was i was about to cross a street and a guy ran a red light i had the green light i had the green walkman and he was like he was probably going 100 through a red light that I was about to cross. Right. And I didn't because I saw it. I didn't hear it. Right. If I wasn't looking and I just went, I would have been a goner. Wow. And that kind of weird memory, that weird callback is, and I remember my mom called them something like vain fears or vain, like um, vain, not as in narcissistic, but as in they didn't manifest. Right. <laughs> right? Like you're like, it's kind of like, as a kid i remember being scared later not while it was happening but later of standing beside the the fence at niagara falls right right so like i don't want anyone to worry or fear for me in this because it's not a depression thing it's a is it a terror it's a it's a it's a post hoc terror of how i i I guess okay here's maybe what i'm saying is like these type of things that I'm wondering if Shadow and Gaiman is getting at in this moment are these kind of subconscious motifs that rise about the fragility of things and how easily one thing goes one way or the other, you're not here, right? Another good example, like this is, anyone could have a laundry list of this. When I was six years old, I had dysentery. It doesn't scare me in the same way, but again, the fragility of like, if I was lived in any other era, I would have been dead, (laughs) right? Because there's no cures for dysentery other than modern medicine kind of thing or like living in Canada, like probably lots of people died of dysentery all over the world that didn't have that kind of technology when I had it in 93. So all of that is, I think from what I love about maybe the antidote from the, the suicidal aspect is from Hamlet. My favorite Shakespeare line bar none of all time is what dreams may come when we shuffle off this mortal coil and it's just that weird spark to want to stay alive that is so precious to me that makes even all of these other fears that I when I lie in bed at night and it's not all the time but it's sometimes I think about it and I and I 
get apprehensive and I, Ugh, I don't yep. like that feeling. Like yep. I shake a little bit and I'm like, think of something else, think of something else, think of something else. And I don't know what it, that is exactly other than I think that it's something uh, in, in the human condition. I, I have you the know? same thing. Exactly. Although I not, I don't think I have this, as good of a handle on it as you do. Uh, but when I was, I guess, 10, I would have these, I would have anguishing panic attacks yeah. about uh, eternity and mm. about, and now the struggle is death and nothingness. It is the worst thing I can, I would never, I wouldn't wish it on an enemy. It is, it is horrifying and it is, ang- it's, it's anxiety on like, I guess it's a panic attack, I guess is what mm. would be the, but, yeah. but it feels so personal and it feels like your own tiny little hell mm-hmm. that you're trapped in yep. and you can't escape and you just want to run or do something because yeah. you just want to escape whatever it is that you're <laughs> feeling in that moment yeah i don't think that's what shadow's feeling but i think this is a great segue actually into david foster wallace right uh in infinite jest he describes uh suicide i think the best anyone ever has so that's why i would say that what... tragic foreshadowing <laughs> yeah Oof. uh but i what uh, I think Shadow is experiencing in the book is a is a suicidal ideation, like you said, a, an idea that just pops into your head and it just seems easy. And it's, it's kind of he seems to be clinically analyzing mm-hmm. um, his his ideation. Yeah. Whereas what David Foster Wallace describes is like so he he draws the picture of someone stuck at a burning building who jumps out the window, and he says they're not less afraid than other people of jumping out of windows. It's that they're so afraid of the fire. And that's how he describes suicide. And I think mm. a lot of people who commit suicide, that anguish maybe that you're describing, that I'm describing, is way more a part of their life. Yeah. Or something. Because frankly, I'm more terrified of, like you said, that Hamlet moment, what dreams will come after death. Yeah. I'm far more terrified of that than I am of living this life, no matter what, I guess, the misery. I mean, I, I don't want to say that, but like... <laughs> yeah. But that terror, if that was like a permanent state of being, I, I could understand. Well, yeah, this is why I think the moral and like social question of suicide is intractable. Because even though everything in me says no, it's hard. It's just, it's a really, really, really hard thing to judge. I don't think on you a can. person, yeah, I don't think you know, you can. because it's not, I mean, it's fucked up, but it's like the most radical form of self ownership. I think anyone you know? who like condemns someone who commits suicide or like or thinks they were weak, yeah, they they just have a very shallow and narrow understanding of the mm-hmm. human condition. And because I, I I do think you want to make sure because of its permanence, you want to give every person who's even flirting with the idea the, as many resources and care yes, and help as you 100%. can. But because it is such a categorical thing. And there aren't many categorical things in human life, but this one is, is that once it has occurred, you have to be in that other category. You can't be in the pre-category anymore. You have to be like, okay, well, how do we honor a memory now? And that has to be what matters. And you can also obviously use it, not use it again, that's totally the wrong term. Anything that, if 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 it does happen for someone, how to know how to better help other people who are struggling in the same situation for sure it's just such a tricky thing and it's not really one that's fun to talk about but no and i think when you look at this book 
the one another thing I love about this book is it talks about the things that nobody wants to talk about. It's it's constantly one of my about favorite death. things about the book is its insistence on the main themes of this book are belief, sex, death, suffering, sacrifice, <laughs> and like a weird wry humor. Yeah, that yeah. is well a gallows humor. That's a perfect yeah, way. because humor, because yeah. of all of those dark things that this book is actually about. The point of everything I'm saying is not a downer. It's that I actually feel more connected to life when I read things in stories of, I call them the quiet things that we never talk about or the quiet things no one knows that are referenced, right? So the very fact that something like that kind of anguish or even the simplicity of the act is just so apparent, so why not? Like to even put that in a book makes me feel more connected to being alive because I'm like, well, my gosh, well, that means that someone like Neil Gaiman has thought about this stuff before. And so I'm like less alone (laughs) in a a messed up way. And and you're right. It's like, is it really socially acceptable to talk about these things? Not really. No, this is not a polite company. Is it necessary? Yeah, probably. Yeah. We should be talking with one another about these things. I agree. uh, This is a huge reason to have safety things at all because it's not just accidents no you know and again on a tangential people in korea have a completely different relationship with death culturally than we do here to talk about suicide is not super uncommon in korea because i think a lot of people know people who've been affected by it that's a completely different issue because I think a lot of the pressures of Korea and yeah, yeah, Japan to, like, make it levels of anxiety that are yeah, on, yeah the dark underside of the human condition is shown the light of day in this book. I actually think that that is the antidote to the dark underside of the human condition is to acknowledge it, put it in the light, and talk about it's it. It's confronting it. Yes, it's it's saying, oh yeah, you know. It's my same uh, argument for free speech. Well, like, I, I want to know where all the bad people are <laughs> yeah. by them talking about it. I don't want yeah. them underground. <laughs> well, and it's, you mentioned this a while ago, and I think it's pretty uh, prescient right now. And that's when you don't align yourself with reality, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> Basically, bad, it's yeah. not going to go well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't, If you don't confront death, death's coming anyway. Mm-hmm. And... You're going to have to, so you might as well get ready for it. Well, and I think part of mindfulness is being aware of the parts of your mind that could betray other parts of your mind that are more you. But betray your sanity. Yeah. Like what you're describing, the terror that you feel on those dark nights It of betrays soul. your sanity. Yeah. It does. 100%. And, and it betrays everything you think you are and, mm-hmm. and creates this utter panic. It, mm-hmm. it creates And fear. part of the terror is like, holy shit what am I capable of that I don't think about and not aware of? And I, if you want to think about it, it's kind of like taming your own beast. I do think that humans are a smorgasbord of what we would call the angel and the devil, right? And I, I think the only way for the angel to win in any given soul is to look straight at the devil and know it's there and take it on head on and not exactly extirpate it but put it in a cage and you're the boss yeah what's the wrong way to do it is to think actually we're angels there's no such thing as demons or devils so we're not going to talk about well it. there's that old cliche if we were talking about cliches <laughs> but i like it which is you know 
the greatest it's not a cliche if you acknowledge it as a cliche. <laughs> the, the, the greatest lie the devil ever, you know, told was that he didn't exist, right? Yeah, no, I know. That's so perfect. And see, that's what I love about things like that. Because it's true. Yeah. But it's true maybe not in the way that people are saying a lot of, necessarily. It's not a super popular topic in Korea to talk about how many youth suicides they have. No. I bet you if they did, it Something would happen, happen less. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or if they actually looked at why. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, sorry for that gutter, but <laughs> no, no, you know, I think I, it's um, an important thing to talk about. I think you're right. Yeah, thanks. Um, and I, th- I actually, I never felt like I ever understood suicide. Uh, I'd had ideations, but I never felt like I understood it till I read Infinite Jest. Mm-hmm. So if you like, if you want to understand it in a way that it'll really shed light mm-hmm. on how people in that condition feel, and I mean, David Foster Wallace did commit suicide. So I mean, this is legitimately how someone who ended yeah, up yeah, going yeah. down that path felt. Uh, I think it. It's I, like I a weird pre-letter, hey? Yeah, I, I couldn't re- recommend it. And uh, and if anyone listening is feeling that way, even now, contact us. Yeah, reach out to we'll, us. We'll we'll talk to you about anything. That's one of the things I like to pride us on and myself on is I'll talk about anything, and I will be realistic, but also hopeful. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like that's my yeah. stance. And so you know, you really true fiction at gmail dot com. Anything I think part of the antidote is just feeling like you're connected to someone else on a on a level that you feel is real yeah and so that's part of why we're even here so hopefully that could be a part of it too anyway shifting gears a bit to wednesday here's one of his great lines that i loved and i wanted to bring up with you the really dangerous people believe that they are doing whatever they're doing solely and only because it is without question the right thing uh-huh <laughs> now again yes. like i'm not we don't have to bore people with oh, okay the nazis and the no. soviets and like these are people who think they're doing the right thing they're not they're not like um <laughs> hans gruber from Die Hard, who's actually he pretends to be an ideological activist he's actually just a thief right, right. like they're yeah. the cynics don't do as much damage i don't think as, as the, the true believers as the true believers kind of thing right? i mean c.s lewis had a great quote that's often used but he says the worst form of tyranny is tyranny that's done for the good of its subjects you know, a robber baron will sometimes sleep and will sometimes ignore, you yeah. know, but a, a tyrant who truly believes in the, like, the righteousness of his mission will, will mm-hmm. destroy his people for their own, for the sake of their own souls. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I agree, like, I think the the scariest thing that can ever happen to a human yeah. is to think they're 100% right about something. Yeah. As soon as that has happened, you have abandoned what it means to be human, yeah. which means mortality mm-hmm. which means finiteness <laughs> which means learning yeah. from our surroundings which means you know a b testing like mm-hmm. that is what we are the best at right like we are the best at a b testing at, <laughs> at trying to figure out trying to be less wrong yeah. to navigate this world to survive and so the context yeah that that you're completely right about that the context i wanted to pose a question to you i guess or a thought experiment or something to like chew on is I want to propose, uh, sorry, it's not my idea. Other, This has been floated. I think that it's not axiomatically a compliment or a good thing to be an activist. Oh, interesting. Okay. Do you know what okay. I mean? Like, okay. I think that traditionally, given a, and especially given a lot of the injustices in our societies for the last couple hundred of years, um, I'm thinking of people who like fought, like an activist who fought for the working class in Dickens' era London or Manchester 
is or Wilberforce fighting oh, yeah. for freedom. Or if slaves. I think of an activist, someone like Orwell, right? <laughs> right? Or an activist, someone like Martin Luther King. Now, I think that this title has give, been given a layer of grandeur because of how many great representatives there have been who would be labeled activists over the last couple centuries, right? I Gandhi. Think, yeah. You could name tons. <laughs> I think one, so I think that that has traveled to our era. So to just say you're an activist now connotes, oh, they are a good person doing a good thing. What that doesn't recognize is the underlying reasons behind why a person was an activist in the first place. So if Wilberforce being an activist of ending slavery, right? MLK being an activist for civil rights. Uh, with tangible examples, I am not convinced that modern activists have the same tethering to their underlying principles of why it's like anything. Once you put a shine on a title or a label, people want to have people it. want it more than they necessarily understand the reasons of why those things have labels and sh- shiny labels in the first place. You know, and so uh, yeah. I wanted I you a, to I have a pontificate on, on that a I little have a theory bit on this. Well, it goes back to something I know I brought up before, but I I'm going to keep reiterating because I need to reiterate to myself. But Nietzsche warned us about this, and he said, you know, we've killed God. How are we ever going to clean up the blood? And I think not only have we killed God, but by elevating aspects of ourselves, by elevating individuality and claiming that the individual is the highest form of of human life, and rightly so in a lot of ways, for democratic reasons, for, for human rights, the individual, the dignity of the individual, all of these things are, I think, essential to protect us from the state, which I would argue is the greatest evil. What has happened is that we've lost our identity and we don't actually know what we are or we don't have a. So uh, stepping back and then stepping forward, the word progress is used a lot. Progressive. I'm a progressive. People self-identify with the word progressive. But one of the things that almost none of these people do is can explain to me where we're going. The word progress has lost its meaning in that case because you cannot progress unless you have a destination in mind. Well, and it's almost, ironically, it's almost a word you can only use when you look at history. Yeah. <laughs> because, because it can only be one that you use in contrast to where you've been. Yeah. Not where you're going. Well, and that, <laughs> and it's re- like on the right side of history. I hate that phrase because there isn't a right or a wrong side to history. There's just history. There's the things mm-hmm. that happened. Well, to be the steel man of yeah. that line, I think it's, if we're going to use it in its most charitable or, or good example, it would be knowing what we know about history and the way people are, what kind of decisions can be we make, like, can a person make now that when we look back on this era, 50 years from now. Like how do we be the Wilberforces? How do we be yeah. the Martin Luther? Yeah. Then that's fair. Yeah. That's okay. That's a good steel man. And, mm-hmm. I, and I will, uh, I'll acquiesce to that. But to be fair to you... I don't think that's that mindful take on the term. I don't think is how it's generally well, actually, used. Well, actually, no, no. I think you might be right. I think that they actually do think that that's kind of that is kind of their maybe their paradigm where it's like, well, people are going to look back on us and be like, wow, look at those knuckle dragging Neanderthals, well, and the that, other we were on the right side. That would be true. For forget 
a label of any person. That would be true for any given individual who also is well read up and knowledgeable and thoughtful and can speak to all of the minutia of the particular people they herald as great activists or progressives or people on the right side of history in the past. So if someone knew everything about Wilberforce and then utilized him as the right side of history, that's completely different than someone who just knows the name yeah. and utilizes it. Yeah. This is the crux of what I'm talking about. I mean, it has so many modern buzz terms like virtue signaling or call out culture. Again, cancel culture. Cancel culture. These are all the the cliches or the or the buzzwords of it now. Now, what what I'm saying is that I I really think that <laughs> there's such a psychological danger of attaching the grandeur or meaning of something to the word we use to describe people who have been that way as opposed to the things that made them that way in the first place. So it's a very motley, loosely held together crew of people who are activists in history like MLK or I would say someone like Thomas Paine in the beginning of the United States was an activist in the right way that he was... If you think about it, activists are people who are... Who advocate. Advocate pointing out a social problem. But the reason they are is because there's a social problem that needs to be figured out. And regardless of any truth in any social problem that any contemporary activist is going for. And I would maybe contentiously suggest that there are way less social problems now than ever before that well, you, mean, you, um, the evidence would, well, would agree and with you. In his latest book, Douglas Murray points out another philosopher who coined this term, St. George in retirement syndrome, where once St. George has slayed all the dragons of, of Europe or of England, What's he to do now? Is he just supposed to retire and go sit home? No. Is that go- the, the mobs one? Well, he, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Madness yeah. of crowds. Now St. George in retirement is actually slaying things that aren't dragons, aren't dragons because that's what he knows how to do. Right? Yeah. So he goes yeah. and cuts off the heads of dogs. Or the point is, of course, that if your orientation is towards solving problems... You need problems. So yeah. you look for them everywhere. Be- That's not the right way. That's not the right mechanism to figure out what is a problem or what isn't. And so I think the labeling of an endeavor has... I would defend the thesis that the labeling of an endeavor is now the current modern version of virtue as opposed to the underlying reasons why you would even be in that endeavor in the first place. A couple of things on that. I think one of the issues that we face is that we are hearing from a lot more people. Yes. Uh, so, honestly, more saturated and you know what? social market. I'm just going to say it. I mean, there's not all that many mindful people out there, I would, I would say. I don't think we're getting a random sampling yeah. of the mindful versus what we might. Well, okay, we don't yeah, we're, getting, we're getting the loud people who want to be heard and want to again it's incentive i think social media incentivizes it incentivizes a certain kind of people and you know what i've seen this happen where people that are loud and shrill actually do become thoughtful or somehow encounter someone who gets them thinking about things and they look back on that that's the importance of grace hey yeah yeah Yeah. and it's pretty cool to see when they're like oh man i i just didn't get it and i love reading those people's stories because it even helps me understand myself and times that i've been more that way than others where where you become dismissive of other people's ideas and things like that right what i was saying before you went on on what you said was about identity and i really do think that people are so desirous of having a framework i mean what do people do they believe 
Right? Mm. I mean, that's what yeah. Shadow says, right? And they're so desirous of that, and they're so longing for that. And they, I mean, man's search for meaning. They are haunted by it that any cheap fix, an aspirin to take away that headache of wondering, say, you know, this is who I am. This is what I do. And this mm-hmm. is why I'm good and they're bad. This is very basic. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't think it's different. I, I think it's always been this way. That humans have wanted a black and white. Mm-hmm. They've wanted a paradigm with, with which it, to understand the world. They've wanted a story. Because mm-hmm. if they don't, and, and right now we just don't have very good stories. <laughs> like our stories are shit. Yeah. And our shitty stories are, I'm going to somehow help this. There's a book about that, actually. I can't remember the author, but it's a, or I, it's like a thought experiment. It's called Icarus Fallen, but not dead. And the idea is, and I think it's more specifically about Europe, but Europe, the Icarus is of Europe who has tried everything and it's all failed, but you're still here. What are you going to do now? <laughs> right. Because yeah. like, Europe has tried religion. And tried. communism yeah. and fascism and every ism has been tried in Europe. Nationalism. And it's all proven to be not ideal to human well-being. And yet people are still there. You got to do something with your time. Well, see, I have a, I have a theory on that, um, but that's not for this podcast. But I think there is something we can do on that. But we just have bad stories. Okay. And, um, and so these people are left in these, these tiny little identities that aren't who they are. Right. But it's not about helping. This is the other thing. It's not actually about helping. When you're an advocate, you are speaking on behalf of those who cannot speak. Mm-hmm. Like that's the whole point of it. Well, an uh, the, the, to me, it's all about what you're emphasizing. So if you say something like, I'm an activist, that's about you. Yeah. If you say, I'm, an I'm, advocate. A- I'm activating, <laughs> no, I'm an yeah. advocate for this cause. That still could be about you. It's not for sure that it isn't, but it gives me a lot more clue as to what else it could be about. Yeah, I like that. Well, like words tell you a lot. Oh, Uh. for sure, right? And so... That was a stupid um, comment, of course, where it's... That's a deepity. (laughs) But like someone like Martin Luther King can say great things along the lines of, I am advocating for all of these people who are being treated as non-citizens, non-humans, basically... And that's why I'm an activist, right? And so his title for himself is secondary to the more antecedent reason why he's doing it. Well, I think it. there's a deep you know? a deep truth here. It's it's internal focus or ex- external focus. Yeah. So we, we've talked a lot about how... For your stance in the world. Yeah, you need, a, you, know? a, you need an internal locus of control. You cannot allow the events and the things that happen outside to so impact you that you just fall apart. However... If you're always navel-gazing and you're an, a huge egotist, right. which we've also talked about, mm-hmm. you're not going to find meaning in that. <laughs> like, there's not enough, I'm sorry to say, there's not enough in you to give you purpose. Yeah. You have to, do, you have to be pouring out. There's a, there's a great uh, th- thing I read like about creative outlets and having creative outlets and how important that is because if you're just constantly pouring in, but you have no way of pouring back out, mm-hmm. you're going to explode, yeah. right? You need some way of expressing yourself in the world. But I think that also applies to, you need to be doing something and it can't just be for you because mm-hmm. that's, I think well, actually it's a fundamental human characteristic that's, that our happiness is actually dependent on usefulness. Yeah. And that's part of what, I would say that's the heart of Murray's Douglas Murray's thesis in his new book, Madness of Crowds, where it's like, I hate to put it this way, but I think it's like a lot of people just need something to do. <laughs> and this is the yeah. next thing to do. 
is to stand up for minority rights. Yes, good thing. Not defining what those are, the limits of them, the null hypothesis. Now you are asking too much of other educated people. That's not going to end well. No. <laughs> because that is divisive. Well, and 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 it's if you need an enemy, you'll find one. Yeah, well, you need an enemy, <laughs> right? They need one. They need the bad guy. Well, I don't want to say they. I think people who find meaning out of their own self-identification as an activist as opposed to something like what is a moral principle that I'm willing to stand up for and that's actually the priority not the fact that I'm someone worth writing about standing up for it kind of thing yeah so it's all kind of like attitude I guess and stance and so that's why I was like it's not just activists like it can be any self proclaimed label about anything and this is more complicated you and I've talked about this a bit about my philosophical idea of like words and like different layers and how we use words and what they would actually mean in one layer is different than a different layer and so we actually need to know which layer we're in to know which words are right and which anyway any listeners are interested i'll get super nerdy about the philosophy of language (laughs) send us an email but we don't want to go too deeply into that uh but i did love that you brought up social media because that segues into the next really important thing that wednesday talks about because there's there's a scene where he's sitting in a diner with shadow and they're talking about the waitress and he does something mean to the waitress. I can't remember. He like he does something that sets her up for a bad situation later on. And Shadow's like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. That wasn't nice to her. He, right? he shortchanges her $10. Right. And there then Shadow is. actually gives her $10. And mm-hmm. Wednesday's like, why? And, and Shadow's that? mad at Wednesday for doing that. And then Wednesday says, ta- what he does is he starts talking about all the bad things the waitress has done in her life you know whatever like she's cheated on someone or she's been mean to her parents like so he stolen he's stolen so wednesday has a laundry list of this waitress's uh you know moral failings or flaws or whatever and then uses that as an excuse to not really care about not paying her her full amount kind of thing now i don't think that's really great obviously but it really made me something interesting that i think is a really important social and sociological issue that we're going to need to start really thinking deeply about in our culture is how we need some privacy or, and I don't think this is going to be possible. So I think the, or is more important, or we have to start being more okay with the ugly things people do (laughs) and, and start to, and, and maybe not forgiveness is not the right word because I think forgiveness, that's a different layer of what we mean. But like if we find out on the internet that some politician when they were 20, got blackout drunk and pooped in someone's yard or something, right? Like, I think that (laughs) my imploration of the news and media is stop talking about the dumb things people have done in their life that actually aren't that bad. Yeah. (laughs) Or if you do, more to the point, because I don't think media outlets will start doing this because it's all clickbait and that's the new incentive. I think the next stage of cultural maturity for us is to stop caring about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, well, to, to let it, to like, people are going to fuck up. And again, we talked about this, the thousand small sanities, the liberal idea of the messy world and the messy person, and the messy mind. I did things when I was young that I'm looking back, I'm very embarrassed about. We're not proud of. <laughs> right, right. 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 And I just think that humans are gross and we do stupid things and, Again, it's not forgiveness. It's more just a kind of like indifference. Or acceptance almost. Yeah. Like um, like this this waitress in the book, sure she fucked all that shit up. 
does that really mean she shouldn't get the $10 owed to her from that interaction? Of course not, right? Like, yeah. But I think that this goes on in a more subtle way of modern life, people dredging up things from the past that unless it's, again, we'd have to, we'd have, to have discussions about where the line is at any given time, and that's not easy either. But I think there are things that are clearly maybe untoward, but still not across the line. Being hammered drunk and sleeping in... Well, actually, I think, interestingly enough, I think maybe our prime minister has kind of paved the way on this a little bit for us. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, that's a good point. Yeah. And Douglas Murray makes this point, too, again here. This is a great opportunity, as he, as Douglas Murray said, this is a great opportunity for conservatives to turn the other cheek. Yeah. And really be like, okay, well, this is next time a conservative person has an untoward moment from their past... Remember this, Mr. Prime Minister, kind of thing. Well, I, I, How I we do has. I think inevitably, what's he gonna do? How can he how can he be woke, as they say? Again, like Ben Shapiro stuff? said, it's an interesting idea to say, because Trudeau now says about his former blackface, it was racist, but I didn't know it at the time. Like that could be a sincere feeling. Yeah. And a sincere <laughs> truth. Yes. Right? So yeah, that actually shouldn't be what you'd hold against a person. And uh, that's a great point. That's a real world example of I, I do think the next one of the great next heuristics with social media is for us to be less surprised that everybody's got skeletons in their closet and care less about it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think uh, that's a really good point, and I I want to dig on it further because I think there are two there are a couple different paths we can go down on this. Either we're going to have the most boring, useless like clean edge puritanical people running everything that everybody with a brain knows is a lie yeah like they're just better at hiding it or like you said we're gonna have to accept it i think we're gonna accept it i think they're i hope when our generation gets to the point where they are in places of power it's just going or or uh, influence it's just going to be impossible when we're the boomers yeah (laughs) when we're the boomers it's just going to be impossible to Everyone's going to have something, and it's just because Trump about- actually uh, has shown a different path of dealing with this, <laughs> which is if you have enough people who just don't give a shit uh, that believe in you and like you, then you're you're invincible. Yeah, that's true. That's the that's the really far other side of the spectrum that I think I'm worried about all extremities. Yeah, so, yeah moderation Trump, and all things. Trump moderation. <laughs> Trump is. Trump is a good example of what happens if you don't care at all about what people have done. Yes. But also, it's more complicated because people hate the other side. Yeah. So, Trump, it's not even, it didn't matter what it's Trump It's not did. really about Trump. But again, like, I'm thinking more just kind of like life. Technology is really only going in one direction because that's where every single financial incentive is. We're going to get less privacy, not more. You're going to start seeing, metaphorically, you're going to start seeing more and more and more inside your neighbor's houses and their bathrooms and their bedrooms. And you're going to just start, you're going to start seeing the things and knowing about the things that people do that we don't talk about in polite society. And I just think the inevitability of technology to encroach in our private lives means we actually have to stop being surprised about weird things in our neighbor's private lives we have to stop being toddlers <laughs> pointing at the kid who's a little bit different in the playground yeah. saying ah ha ha mm-hmm. when we all know that we you know piss our bed at night there's nothing weird about autoerotic asphyxiation david <laughs> whatever <laughs> okay last wednesday thought 
The U.S. shares things like money, The Tonight Show, and McDonald's, but they are an illusion to make it seem like the same country. And I would love to hear more about this from Americans because I remember seeing a book uh, one time, uh, the thesis of which was that if America was formed like other countries, it'd actually probably be about like 11 different countries, not one. But because because most nation states are kind of ground up through history and like yeah. a people and a culture, whereas the United States, I think, is the first country to have a constitution that was more top down. Yeah. Like there was a, like, there was obviously people in the United States well, the before thing- the constitution, but they were like basically Protestant working class, <laughs> you know, uh, more or less. Like there's obviously different denominations of the Protestant, but because the US was the first country to have a top down government constitution really before it had like one people kind of thing. The diversity of it is that there's so much disconnect culturally of the United States. There's so many different cultures within the United States that if it were to, if the United States was like a physical geography that evolved politically in the same way that basically Europe and Africa and like all the other countries did, and again, this is an oversimplification, it would actually be many more countries than one country because of how different the cultures are. Like, and you talked about, like, Texas is so different from Florida. California. Which is so different from California, which is so different from Iowa. I mean, Canada is the same. Yeah, it's true. It is. So the positive side of that is it makes me, someone like me, want to figure out what unifies. Because if we are so culturally disparate, this is one of the reasons I love hockey about Canada. Because this maybe hockey is the only coast-to-coast cultural adhesive we all have are there any other can you think of any other that i might think be? about this a lot uh maple syrup uh it's definitely one <laughs> yes <laughs> um, john candy winter generally speaking the idea of winter actually that um, is something i love because winter in canada is fucking harsh yeah. right and everyone and, experiences and the it fact and- that everyone goes through it is such a bonding experience i think for the canadian identity like i actually did this today like late november and it snowed a lot in Calgary today. And it wasn't super cold, but there was a ton of snow. And I actually did, I do this program at work called Junior Survivor. And so the challenges were all outdoor snow-based challenges today for the kids. And the great thing is these kids, they are, I mean, this is a big city in Canada. So it's a very diverse population of kids that come to the club that I work at. And yet, this is what I love. It doesn't matter what a background, skin color, gender it's all irrelevant because we have a common goal and we're doing something together. And the winter is equally harsh to everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's not and so like everyone's it, in the same boat. Mother and Nature so doesn't see a skin color kind of thing. We're all working together on that. And yeah. I, you're right, winter does bond. Winter's Canada. a big one. Uh, not nationalized healthcare. A lot of <laughs> Canadians really care about that. It's true. Um, I would say probably the biggest identifier that we all have is that we're not American. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, studying that has been done on this and a lot of polling and stuff. It's very... We don't want to be American. America better. <laughs> We're better than America. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, which I mean, it's kind of like a little brother syndrome, in my opinion. Like sure. you know, you 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 know, you want to shine your own well, light. And I especially feel that the sting of that because living in Korea, I made so many amazing friends who are from the states, who were anything but the stereotype of why the stereotype of Canada would be, we don't like, want to be you. <laughs> the, the big secret about Canada is everyone's like, You're, we're so nice. We're not so nice. We're just really polite. <laughs> we're actually kind of bastards. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've uh, been socially conditioned well. Then, yeah, I guess. exactly. Yeah, that's true. I guess it's harder for Canada. And But so then I wonder, like, again, I get, I would have to talk to some American friends. Like, there's like, what, like 330 million 
yeah, people we're 10% in America. Roughly. What are the coast to coast unifying things Empire, in America? I yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of people who don't want that or don't think. Yeah, it's but there's probably a lot important. of people in Rome that didn't want. You know. Well, that's what I mean, though, is that I think that I think the f- the fractions of those things are more obvious in the U.S. because of how many more people there are. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I mean, they're they do have like massive cultural differences there, whereas <laughs> we have like tweaked cultural differences, perhaps. Just a couple other lines from other characters, then. Uh, even though I think I could talk about this for a lot longer. Well, we could probably sit here for <laughs> yeah. another um, seven so the, or eight hours. The town, I think, it was in Wisconsin, where the, is it in Wisconsin where Shadow it lives, or is that Minnesota? The town so where the he's like one. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Lake View, Lakeside, Lakeside, Lakeside. In Wisconsin, it is in Wisconsin. Uh, so I made a note about how it's insidious how the small town dies, which is the same as the old gods. People just stopped paying attention to it. And this is more of an aesthetic point, maybe, than a practical one. But I don't know. There's something kind of sadly beautiful of the idea of something withering away. Because I think about all of the other things. Like, it's it's not that people made a conscious effort to, like, get rid of something like rotary phones. No. It's just that there were better alternatives for them. And so then, now, if you saw a picture of a rotary phone, you just, like, you would almost the way our brains work, you would make that synonymous with loneliness or sadness right. or bygone days or, or, and I, th- nostalgia. And I, yeah. Nostalgia, but like a, a nostalgia that is not coming back. <laughs> yes, <laughs> kind right, of thing. Right. And I feel like the small town is like kind of this thing now because I came from a small town. I love it and I feel it, but it's not where people move to. And no. It's not like the, the, yeah. the percent of people who left my hometown as opposed to stayed, it's probably like, 80 to 20 percent yeah you know that kind of thing but it's beautiful in the book how i think that that the way that he talks about lakeside mirrors the way that the gods have stopped being worshipped Yeah, that is a real that's an insight that i had yeah you're right it's it's beautiful because there's so many great lines and love small towns yeah Uh, and so i loved that there's a great line from nancy people only fight over imaginary things (laughs) which (laughs) which reminds me of a of a great Steven Pinker line where he says, academic disputes are particularly hostile because the stakes are so low. Uh, yeah, I love that quote's <laughs> used in different capacities, and yeah. I love it, yeah. Uh, Student politics being another There's the fat kid that we mentioned earlier. When you have to be wired, you're back in the Stone Age. Ingratitude. And this was written in 2001. I know. You know, but like, I do think that there's something deeply insightful about the ingratitude when our technology doesn't work to the extent that we think it should I, well it's it's entitlement <laughs> you know? it's yeah. essentially entitlement. it is entitlement and it's so ugly yeah uh, it reminds me of like in university 18 year olds going to resident services front desk and basically yelling at front desk staff who are like in their 40s trying to help them because yeah. I pay my money. I go here. You work for me, kind of uh, thing. I hate those people. And are the other are, are the customers always right? Entitlement. Just, no entitlement time for those people. is so ugly. Yeah. Um, but here's a line that I don't know. This could be a difference between you and me. We've talked about this, but it's on page 139. All we have to believe with is our senses, the tools we use to perceive the world. And even if we do not believe, then still we cannot travel in any other way than the road our senses show us. And we, wa- and we must walk that road to the end. 
So I made the note, the inevitability of the natural. And I think this is kind of something I was trying to get at in the Gladiator episode that I think is articulated better here by Gaiman, obviously, than I would. Even if you repudiate the necessity of the natural world, you still have to be in it. Yeah. You know, and and I think that that's the more overarching, interesting point is that so you could be the, I would say even, you could have someone in a philosophy classroom who's the most ardent advocate of solipsism. Like there's nothing outside of my head. That's the most base fact. And that's actually uh, my interpretation of reality. But that person still avoid, like walks through the doorway and not into the wall, <laughs> right? Yeah. They they still, They're still navigating they still reality. behave as if there's a real world that they have to navigate and monitor their way through. And that's much more, I think, of what I was trying to get at in that earlier episode is that I don't know if I can totally believe someone who says they have an opinion about the world that isn't thoroughgoing empirically because they still behave like they do. Yeah. So I don't really know where that goes in like this podcast other than like that line. It just strikes me so true is that and this happened mostly in either growing up in church or in philosophy class where like, well, you can't really know anything's real. I was like, well, and I think David Hume makes this point. It's like, well, even the most ethereal philosopher cries out when their tooth aches. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that kind of thing. And so like, this is what, what is so interesting to me as a, someone who wants to think about philosophy is like, I don't know if I can take seriously someone who could have a gap between what they say they believe and the way they act in the world. Well, I don't know if that's true because you say the stuff about the messy mind and the messy human and hypocrisy. Oh, no, yeah. So I don't agree with that. I don't think you do either, essentially. Well, that's, but um, I think that's different than no, I don't think behaving so. in the world. Because hypocrisy is, is basically saying one thing and doing another. And I mean, that's the only way we can know what people believe is what they say, right? So you I don't think it's see fairly it. common that people will say something or believe something and then act differently. So you don't see any philosophical, and I don't mean like subconscious. I'm saying like you don't see a philosophical discordance between the person who says there is no world outside of my head but who goes through the doorway instead of just walking into the wall. I think they would probably say that they the wall is in their head and they're navigating in their head. Okay. Well, fair enough. I would, I mean, I think what you're doing there is you're straw manning that argument by saying that they're acting in the real Well, you you are presupposing the existence of the real world when you're saying that. Right? Yes. That's fair. That's um, a that's a bootstrapping axiom I will make. Yeah. And I'm not saying you're wrong. Right. What I'm saying is you're not actually you're not you're not engaging with their idea on their terms because you you have you believe in you deeply believe but then wouldn't you say also then that that idea is unfalsifiable yeah i would okay I think that's the whole so point. then i guess i just don't have any interest in unfalsifiable claims well i mean that's your prerogative yeah but people but, often do i guess is what i would say uh to be as fair as possible i am deeply suspicious of that you're I, deeply suspicious I, of people who have unfalsifiable claims or you're deeply suspicious of people who would say that they believe in something that is unfalsifiable the unfalsifiability of a claim to me is a weakness of it not a strength 
because I think that yeah 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 but that's again your position right right like that that is that is coming from your first principles but but I not from the first principles of the person you're talking about but I've never seen a person behave as if the things in their life weren't falsifiable which means that they could choose one thing over another and that that choice was relevant what do you mean by that so anything that they need done in their life they don't just leave it up to things like the moment you act in the world, you're choosing one thing to be doing instead of something else to be doing. Right. Which yeah. means it's not predestination, which means that you have a choice, which means that you could go A or B kind of thing. And that piece. But how is that falsifiable? Style. Because I think you could have. Making you a could, choice you could run, falsifiable. You could run experiments based on which of your decisions was better or worse. Well, no, you can't because you can't do both decisions. Uh, well, you can later in time. Right. But then is it really the same decision? If the conditions are essentially the same, I, I think... I mean, that's the other thing, is that the conditions are never the same. Everything is shifting. <laughs> <laughs> this is not, not my problem with science. Like, I don't want to sound like someone who thinks that science is bad or something. I just think that an over-reliance on science doesn't take reality, at least as, as far as we understand it now, into full consideration. Being able to replicate an experiment, sure, yes, you can, except you cannot replicate it in the same time space. Yeah, but I mean, there's no alternative. No, I'm not saying there's an alternative. <laughs> I'm just saying that there are base assumptions we know are we make because they're practical, but are they true? I don't know. Okay, so in the situation of the <laughs> solipsist who will yes choose to walk through the door instead of the wall instead of walking through the wall, you could run the experiment. And say the reason you actually want the walk through the door is that if you walk into the wall, you do get a physical trauma through your nervous system. And I can't take seriously the person who says that's just appearing to me because I would see it happen too. The overwhelming way the way humans behave is as if there is a world outside our heads that we interact with. I think the best example of this is driving. Everyone seems to stop at red lights and everyone seems to go at green lights. And when that doesn't happen, it's so clear that it's a problem. A problem. And yet when I'm driving a car, I look around at all the other cars and it's just other people behind the wheel who are making the move. Now, once I bring up that kind of example, someone could say, well, that could just be in your head too, or that <laughs> well, could just the be argument, in my head too. Right? And I, I guess I don't understand the need to make that extra step. Well, I mean, why not? I don't why think not there is any the simpler, practical reason f- to do that. Why not have mm-hmm. the simpler, more parsimonious explanations? Like, well, no, there actually are other people <laughs> who appear like me who are driving these cars that are seeing the same color I do and know what it means and seeing the other color and know what it means and responding in kind, that kind of thing. And I think... Also, that point I'm making about the streetlights is what Gaiman's talking about. It's like, well, even if you say there aren't stoplights, you act as if there are. Yeah, maybe this is the best way to articulate it, and then maybe you can understand what I'm trying to get at, because I think I I now understand what you're trying to get at. But I guess what I'm saying is, is that, and what this book, I think, is saying is, we can make up things that are just as real as the real world in terms of how we interact with them. We can interact yeah, with no, something that's that, true. that doesn't exist, that we made up, as if it does. I don't think I've ever disputed that. I'm thinking that the more like basic way I would say it is like, that's true, but you need a physical world to exist before we can exist for our minds to do that. 
and I don't think you're saying that. Yeah. I don't think you're saying no. They it, it exists like in a platonic form outside of space and time. I'm just saying as long as the antecedent uh, thing is I, granted. I guess the disagreement in the um, in the Gladiator episode right. is that you were saying unless you align yourself with like how things actually are, you're gonna have a bad time, which I, I agree with mm-hmm. largely. But you could say this is the truth and get burned at the stake. You're just gonna, you're gonna be just as dead as if you got hit by a car because you were jumped in front of this, you know, jumped into the street. Okay, well, I'll, I'll. Brett Weinstein has this great idea called metaphorically true, literally false, and he used the point of the porcupine, where if you kind of make the assumption that porcupines can shoot quills, quills. off their you're tails, gonna you're gonna stay further away, which isn't literally true. But it's probably true metaphorically Metaphorically, in the sense that, well, you're going to... And then the more modern version that they talked about was guns. Like, you could have an unloaded gun. But always act like But it's act loaded. like it's loaded, and it's safe for the time that it is loaded kind of thing. That makes total sense to me, but it's only comprehensible because there are guns, or there are porcupines in the world. And the moment that you're talking about things that there aren't through sense data, I'm not able to go with you well you're not (laughs) able to but what i'm saying and i'm saying most people do i think that they do without knowing that they're still by their behavior paying homage to the things in the world because they're still if they follow a leader they're still walking on a road they're still breathing air or oxygen they're still wearing clothes which are all made of atoms right right (laughs) right and i'm just saying i think the interesting part is not so much where the metaphorically true, literally false is happening. The interesting part is where that extra step is taken, where it's like, well, actually, all of these things that I'm metaphorically talking about are antecedent to the physical things around us that we are seeing and feeling and touching. And see, I think I'm the other way. I don't think the atoms are interesting. I hmm? think it's the fact that people follow leaders. People couldn't follow leaders if there weren't atoms. Right, though. but I just don't think the atoms are... No, no, no. I'm not saying that either, but I'm saying yeah. when someone says it is antecedent to atoms, I'm like, well, no, it's not. <laughs> right. No, I, I see where you're going. And that's just, I think, interesting in how metaphysics is talked about in theological terms. Right. And, and I, platonic yeah. terms, not just theological, like also ancient Greek philosophical terms. We are. There's We're one person still one, listening. Yeah, nobody to this. cares about. But you this know what? Anymore. Fuck it. I'm interested in this shit. And if you want to talk about? And it. it's our goddamn podcast. <laughs> but here's something again more ethereal, but that I'm also interested because in, I'm not just a hard ass positivist <laughs> empiricist. So there's a about in the middle of the book. There's this character named Went, who killed himself in 1941, 1942. I think I can't really remember. And it just made me think of all the people in history whose circumstances were just as meaningful to them as ours is to us, right? So, like, I was just thinking, man, I go through my day, I drive to work, it's super important to me, and all of the things that happen seem like the whole world. Yeah, yeah. But I also read books about people who lived 30 years ago, 100 years ago. I see movies, I see things that make me believe that there was a history where there were people before me. I know that people, I was born to people who existed before me. And there are people younger than me who didn't exist when I existed. And yet the way that the world interacts with their minds, it's so important to them. And I can't think of a better antidote to solipsism than that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the whole uh, 
you know, you know this is water commencement mm-hmm. speech by david foster wallace where he's basically like you know the most common delusion that we all have right and i've said this before so you guys well i'm gonna say it again because maybe you guys because you're a goddamn listen to us <laughs> everything we say it's a delusion it is a it's a madness to think yeah. that you're the most important thing in the world just because you happen to be stuck in this meat bag right like there are other people, <laughs> and the sooner you get past the illusion that everything is so significant because it's happening to you, mm-hmm. the happier you're going to be. Yeah. I do love that outside of yourselfness. Yes. That comes with thinking about, like, man, this guy who killed himself in the 40s, he had a life. And, like, forget about the book. Like, people have lives in different eras. There's an easiness or a tendency to read history about, like, hmm, those people who were building a world for someone like my generation to come in and now be the yeah. creme de la creme. Like every generation thinks it's the most important one, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then they slowly age and realize. I just no think that's cares. the wrong way to think about it. Yeah. Because everything that matters to me would have mattered to someone in the 1940s or the 1920s. I mean, maybe our cultural worldview would be different, but they had a brain who had received inputs and had to act in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that little thought. Gods are great, but the heart is greater. For it is from our hearts they come, and it's to our hearts they will return. And we make these things that we're based on that we care about. That's like what you talked about earlier. The media blackmailing Shadow with how to portray him, not how he is. This only works on people who can't see that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then the last note I made is Gaiman's line of, religions are places to stand and look and act. Vantage points from which to view the world. And yeah, I do, I do, are. I do think that's true. Like, I love that... As I've grown older, you know, my early 20s were for all of my energetic militant atheism, which has fortunately subsided. I'm realizing as I get older, (laughs) to shout out to your friend Tom there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That my umbrage with religion is much more focused on when I feel like it oversteps its mandate in people's lives. Um, so like when it tells people who to sleep with and and the punishment is sin or hell or that kind of thing, right? Like w- when religions have done things like inquisitions, because I think that it's, I do think that <laughs> this is going to sound maybe cold or callous because of how destructive it was. But to me, the reason that the Spanish Inquisition was so evil is because it is almost certainly based on a faulty premise. <laughs> oh, okay. Not necessarily because of the bloodshed. Now I will hopefully vanguard my own <laughs> ethical framework of mine by saying I don't think there are anything that exists that could justify that kind of killing. Right. But why it was particularly evil was because it was a faulty premise. Well, be- because, well, what you were saying is your friend, there is a logic to saying, I think it's at the beginning of the podcast you mentioned, there's a logic to saying, well, if you really think the hellfire waits for these blasphemers and everyone else. This is a very logical thing to do. And I think part of the sadness of this, the tragedy and the unnecessity of it was the, you don't know this is true. (laughs) Like you, your conviction is not enough. Uh, Okay. But again, I think you, or okay. They think, let me rephrase. They do know it's true. Uh, Yes. Part of enlightenment is realizing that conviction and personal conviction is not enough to warrant murder. Yeah. Like, to put it that simply. And that is a paradigm shift of philosophy, 
which is why I think philosophy, like to me, the, all of the things that the the belief or the non the non physical things that influence people, I actually think I live my life agreeing with you with because to me it's not belief exactly. I would call it philosophy. Right. What argument you can make or what way you can talk that's about a belief. things to think You're about believing things. in an argument. I I know. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm not saying is that philosophy is antecedent to people. It's just a tool we use to get through things. But again, that's a first principle. Yep. Like then other people could have different first principles. The the rightness of your first principle is is not because you have it doesn't mean it's right. Does that make sense? Right and wrong are I don't think the exact correct words to use. Yeah, for, well, I mean, I it, think our philosophies do fundamentally differ on this point. And so I, I'm not philo- I'm not I don't mean philosophies. I mean like philosophy as in cuz like how the, the, you the would, grounding of the conviction that you have here is right. that human dignity matters and that mm-hmm. dignity that dignity supersedes so the value that you're propositioning is that that dignity supersedes any belief you might have. Yeah, right? But that is a belief. Uh, yeah, but it's um it's a belief that I think has a track record of showing. Oh, that I, I'm not saying it's a bad belief. It works really well right, because but I, but it I am saying that that I think liberates people's minds. Yeah, cool, good, right? I agree. Mm. But what I'm saying is, if we can't understand that, okay, let's take the radical Islamist, sure, for example. Here. Yeah, they they just do not agree. Right, right, and they won't agree. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter what you say when that they believe that killing in the name of Allah. Well, yeah, I would say I'm not. That's not anyone I would be trying to convince of anything. No, any right. radical ideologue of any stripe is not. It's not who you're a target to audience yeah. <laughs> member for someone like me. It's partly the humility of realizing that almost every belief system in history is at least in some way based on or given traction from an, an almost certainly incorrect apprehension of the natural world seizures are not caused by demons epilepsy is now well known and mm-hmm. how it functions and that's actually the more significant causal chain or reason f- to it you know our knowledge of meteorology really removes our reliance on witchcraft as an explanation for any given scenario and so yeah i mean i know we talk all around this even though I think we're mostly in the same spot and we're just really stumbling around in the dark, bumping into each other, figuring out the parts where we're not on the same page because we haven't really talked about this before so much in our personal lives. So it's an interesting way of exploring it and figuring it out. Religions specifically have lost their powers over people's minds because there's just been more plausible answers given. You think that's why religions have lost uh, their power? I I really do. I really think, I mean, it's how it worked on me. And I think there's a lot of people in the world probably like me who this works on where it, it's, it's totally encapsulated in the uh, line from the French astronomer Laplace when he showed Napoleon his model of the solar system, which had, you know, the planets mm. and the orbits and et cetera. And then Napoleon said, well, where is the kingdom of God in this model, right? And Laplace kind of, I don't know how he would have said it exactly. He was like, I was not in need of that hypothesis. And so I think it's not so much rejected as transcended any yeah, given and, belief and I can, system. And I can, um, I guess my issue with that is I don't think it has transcended. 
I don't think. No, no, no. It's not totally transcended. But I'm saying like why I think. Forget any given religion. There are people who used to believe in fairies. Yeah. And it was much more widespread. I mean, obviously, there's still people who believe in fairies now. Yeah. But I don't. I just don't think. And maybe it's been substituted for something else. But when someone says, well, you know, fairies caused this weather today. There may be some people who take that person seriously. I don't think most people would anymore. Like the, the proportion. And so now maybe it's more like, oh, well, this happened on Twitter today. So now this is why this happened. And that's plausible. I think maybe we do substitute. What I would hypothesize, and I think it'd be such an interesting study, is to figure out how many people in the world know that they're fictions, that they live by our fictions and are choosing them as opposed to them being foisted on them by others. Well, and I think that's the beauty of this book. Yeah. That I would agree with you is, are we choosing our fictions? Mm-hmm. And, and why are we choosing them? Because choosing the fiction that you live your life by, like liberalism or a, you know the John Stuart Mill style of liberalism, is kind of mindfulness. Is that thoughtfulness? Is that here is how I want to live based on how I know the faultiness of my brain and trying to help other people along in the meantime, you know? Well, I really agree with uh, Jordan Peterson on this in the sense that I think, I mean, one of my first principles is just try to alleviate as much suffering as possible. Mm -hmm. And I try to do that. I'm not good at it. Like, that's the thing, (laughs) messy people, messy lives, right? But I think how you determine It's hard to know who you're helping, right? I think even if you decide to stay in the faith of your your ancestors, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, because it's important to you, because you believe it, whatever it is, figure out the first principles behind it. Like, why do you believe it? Yeah. Uh, And not because the Bible says There's like a beautiful curiosity. Yeah, it should should be. be It's like, it's East of Eden. It's a story of Cain and Abel. Thou mayest. Yeah. Like, I think that would be the perfect encapsulation of why I think it's, it's important to think about these things even if you choose to continue mm-hmm. to believe and disagree with luke and i entirely yeah um i would love to hear that yeah think about it right think about why like luke and i and luke more than i although i'm trying to get better at this have thought about why we believe what we believe a lot and our first principles and how we want to kind of live our life like this has been a, a pursuit of our lives from all the reading we've done and the and the thinking we do and i think it's very I, I would argue it's a uplifting. Way to live. It's very uplifting. It, it, it gives you a It a makes guiding, my heart lighter. It gives you a guiding light that isn't someone else told me to. Yeah. It's freedom. Yeah. That's true. That's a perfect way to put it. I want to let you read your last yeah. line. Okay, so I would say this book for me, reading it the first time, I was really surprised at how thoughtful and deep a noir could be, you know? Because again, stylistically, this is an LA Confidential feel to it. I mean, like a supernatural LA Confidential feel to it kind of thing. And philosophically, it was so great. I loved seeing the moment where the new gods really kind of realized that they were the old gods, but just with new clothes, (laughs) you know? Like the, the sameness because the gods in this book actually act more prototypically like humans do with their pettiness and their silliness and their warringness as opposed to gods in the past, which are, even though the gods of Olympus were chaotic, they were still above the fray of humans, right? right? Whereas these ones needed humans, so they acted like humans. I love the moment where 
people who seem different than you for one reason or another are revealed to be not. Yeah. That's what I've experienced from traveling, what I've experienced from meeting people from all over the world, working with kids from such diverse backgrounds that actually the human species is way more the same than they are different fundamentally. And I think it's so corrosive to focus on the differences. So in a weird way, one of my favorite parts of the book is when the gods realize that they don't need to fight each other because they're actually yeah, all the same. They're the same. They're, yeah. they're, they, they need a And they're a, just a being brethren. conned. They're being yeah. conned. Yeah. I love that. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's great. Well, because I feel like social commentators who say, hey, you're from this country, so you're different from the person from this country axiomatically are the con artists. Yeah. Well, they're, they're the merchants of rage. So my favorite character in the book is Sam. She's the uh, the half First Nations girl who um, she's just a really cool character. Very very briefly there, but I want to read a quote by her because I think it encapsulates uh, Neil Gaiman's writing. But it also is just it summarizes and yet confuses what Luke and I've been talking about. So here we go. I can believe things that are true and things that aren't true, and I can believe things that were where where nobody knows if they are true or not. I believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and the Beatles and Marilyn Monroe and Elvis and Mr. Ed. Listen, I believe that people are perfectible, that knowledge is infinite, that the world is run by secret banking cartels and is visited by aliens on a regular basis. Nice ones that look like wrinkled lemurs and bad ones who mutilate cattle and want our water and our women. I believe that the future sucks and I believe that the future rocks and I believe that one day white buffalo woman is going to come back and kick everyone's ass. I believe that all the men are just overgrown boys with deep problems communicating and that the declining the decline in good sex in America is coinc- is coincident with the decline in driving movie theaters from the state to state. I believe that all politicians are unprincipled crooks and still believe that they are better than the alternative. I believe that California is going to sink into the sea while the when the big one comes, while Florida is going to dissolve into madness and alligators and toxic waste. I believe that antibacterial soap is destroying our resistance to dirt and disease so that one day we'll all be wiped out by the common cold like Martians in the War of the Worlds. I believe that the greatest poets of the last century were Edith Sitwell and Don Marquis, and that jade is dragon or dried dragon sperm, and that thousands of years ago, in a former life, I was a one-armed Siberian shaman. I believe that mankind's identity lies in the stars, or, yeah, destiny lies in the stars. I believe that candy really did taste better when I was a kid, that it's, that it's aerodynamically impossible for a bumblebee to fly, that light is a wave and a particle, and that a cat's in a box somewhere who's alive and dead at the same time, although if you don't ever open the box and feed it, it'll eventually just be two different dead kinds of dead, and that there are stars in the universe billions of years older than the universe itself. I believe in a personal God who cares about me and worries and, and oversees everything I do. I believe in an impersonal God who set the universe in motion and went out to hang with his girlfriend and doesn't even know uh, that I'm alive. I believe in an empty and godless universe of causal chaos, background noise, and sheer blind luck. I believe that anyone who says sex is overrated just hasn't done it properly. I believe that anyone who claims to know what's what's going on will will lie about the little things too. I believe in absolute honesty and sensible social lies. I believe in a woman's right to choose, a baby's right to live, and with all humans, life is sacred, and there's nothing wrong with the death penalty if you can trust the legal system implicitly, and there's no one but a moron would ever trust the legal system. I believe that life is a game, that life is a cruel joke, and that life is what happens when you're alive, and that you might as well lie back and enjoy it. Yeah. Well said. I think uh, that's a that is a great example of both Gaiman's writing and the kind of tension of the ways that we're pulled in different directions to think about things. Exactly. Yeah, 
Like you could do it one way today and the next way tomorrow. But I do still think, interestingly with all that, part of the encouragement of this book is to think about which of those you're choosing. Yeah, and well, why. that's why I think it's a beautiful book because mm-hmm. it's, it's all about belief. Yeah. And I think that, that rant, which it essentially is, encapsulates the the confusion <laughs> of choosing what to believe. Yeah. And I'll leave it at that. Oh, that's great. Anyway, I appreciate that part, David, and I really appreciate you, uh, even if I can never prove it. <laughs> I hope you'll take my word for it. <laughs> so anyway, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name's Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. And uh, have a good one. Bye.